Welcome to All of the Classics Podcast with your host, Hope Sears. I have filmmaker and fellow old-time radio fan, Zach Yeastman, with me as a guest on the podcast today to talk about the 2,000-year-old man himself, actor and director Mel Brooks. Although we recorded this episode months ago, we're releasing it on Mel's birthday. Zach has filmed many marvelous works, such as Twombly, The Boy Who Stares, and he just completed filming Heavy Hangs the Sky. Zach also has some awesome podcasts he is a part of, including with his friends The Real Nerds and the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. It's worth checking out. We started our conversation off mic, talking about the late Carl Reiner and his friendship with Mel Brooks. Humble brag personalities that I'll accept like I don't I don't tend to accept a lot of people who talk about themselves too much but I'm like but it's Mel Brooks I'm not going to tell him to shut up right you know (laughs) yeah Uh, oh yeah I mean when Carl died like I was like I immediately was like oh my gosh Mel Brooks is how is he doing (laughs) Yeah, I was just like, who's going to watch Jeopardy with him? Well, like, that's... Didn't he also, like, pass, like, the day after his at Mel's birthday? That's... Yep. That's insane. Yep. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, there's a, there's a documentary that I recommend you check out. There's a documentary on Netflix called If You're Not in the Obituary, yes. Eat Breakfast. And it's one of the... It's one of the greatest fluffy documentaries I've ever seen. It's not like that's not a denigrating thing. It's just that it's a it's not like speaking to a major social issue, but it's talking about a commonality that we as humans experience. And him talking about his friendship with Carl is is important to it in addition to all the other factors. I think a lot of people when they're going to watch it, they're going to want to watch the Dick Van Dyke segment, which is more than fair. But Listening to Mel, Carl, and Norman Lear all in a room at, with Dick is is a is a treat. Um, and then they did before Carl died. They did a segment on CBS Sunday Morning talking about the the importance of wearing a mask, and they related it to their experience in World War II because both of them were in the service. Both were more than aware of the amount of commitment it took both on the home front and overseas to get that war won. And, you know, needless to say, much like myself, Carl and Mel would not put up with somebody like Mr. Ex-President. And on that same one, they actually had George Takai, and he talked about his experience in the internment camps as a kid. Yeah, I think I did um, see that, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's like so their 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 friendship is very interesting. Like the the best exemplar of it is the classic one, which is two thousand year old man. You watch the evolution of that bit; it's pretty astounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you said you found Mel Brooks yeah. uh, at a young age. So, what yes. what brought you to Mel Brooks? Oh, um, well, like specifically, it my history with Mel is interesting because. My dad showed us when we were younger, young Frankenstein, but I didn't put the dots together um, of who who made it. Like it, that concept of a director was not relevant to me at a young age of like eight, seven or eight. The only director I knew of was George Lucas, and that's just because those Star Wars tapes are mm-hmm. so prevalent. Um, 
And then around the same time, one of my neighbors, um, who was a who was a little bit older than me, brought over Spaceballs, and we watched it. And that resonated with me more, being a Star Wars fan. Years later, I guess it must have been Spaceballs that kicked it back off. Um, but uh, around eighth grade, I really started digging into Mel. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with I grew up very uh, isolated. I I I would used to think it was bullying, and now I'm just like, no, nah, I was just a weird ass kid. And for any flack I got, I gave as much back. Um, but regardless, very lonely, not really having many friends apart from one. And between Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, like Spaceballs has an interesting thing that allows you to look into Mel's filmography, which is. Um, if, if you recall the scene where they're trying to figure out where everybody's going and they go, I have an idea, get me a copy of Spaceballs, yeah. the movie. Yeah. And then the wall opens up and he goes through and every film that he, that the, that the Spaceball um, soldier is listing is producers, 12 chairs, blazing saddles, you know, Frankenstein, anxiety. And they are going through the list. And, I think I must have paused the. I, it's it's been so long I can't remember, but I must have paused it and looked at the titles. And then we had the internet, so eventually I looked up the filmography. We it was instead of Wikipedia, it was like IMDb, and uh, I started finding them. I had to kind of look all over the place because not every one of them was available on DVD at the time. Um, so like Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, those are all uh, those those are all. Um, on DVD. Um, and my dad actually was the one who watched Blazing Saddles with me first because he wanted to show... My dad's always wanted to show me movies that I wasn't old enough to watch and he was slowly yeah. trickling them out to me. Like like Pulp Fiction. The first time I saw Pulp Fiction, that was with my dad because he was like, you're going to love this movie, but you've got to wait because I don't want your mom killing me. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and then I... Uh, uh, with Blazing Saddles, like, it, was a, it was a really... It, it was a big lesson in uh realizing uh prejudice um it wasn't the first one i had but it was a big lesson in it um and learning how words affect people and uh between all of that like it was a big confluence of events and eventually i picked up the other ones on video from the library so i had to like wait for it but Eventually, I found Robin Hood Men in Tights, High Anxiety, Silent Movie, The Producers. The Producers ended up being ended up being the last one I saw, and it's still my favorite to this day. Um, but I have like a top three of like these are the films that if I were to put somebody fr- in, uh, down in front of them and tell them what Mel Brooks is, I could tell that two of them in these films without showing them the classic films, like the established mm-hmm. classics. Um, so yeah, like it, it was really like a, a natural discovery for it. And then in high school was when I learned that he did the producers on Broadway and I had a teacher, uh, that was next to, uh, the video production class. And, uh, uh, I looked through his shared iTunes library and saw he had the producer soundtrack and I sheepishly went up to this other teacher and said like can i burn the producer's soundtrack onto a blank disc please <laughs> and he was like yeah sh- sure what who are you <laughs> like <laughs> like this which is it, it, perfectly understandable this this dorky kid with slick back hair walking in wearing a suit because i thought tim burton was the shit and i loved ed wood so i'm like well i should wear a suit and <laughs> 
uh, and uh, and then I got it. Yeah, <laughs> and then I got it, and then I listened to it, and I was like, oh my god, this is even more insane than than the producers. This is astounding. And like, so yeah, Mel has stuck with me all through the years, and in fact, he's probably become even more important as time has gone on um, in that respect. But it's it was like a natural like finding of his mm-hmm. comedy. Yeah, I I didn't really discover him until I don't know if I was in high. I must have been in college, maybe high school, mm. maybe high school. I was really into Carl Reiner, so obviously mm-hmm. being best friends, I was like, well, I'm running yeah. out of Carl Reiner stuff to watch. Although, how in the world can you run out of Carl Reiner stuff to watch? That seems like that seems like you just you just pirated everything <laughs> off the internet, didn't you? Like you. <laughs> You took all the Dick Van Dyke. You took all the episodes of Hot in Cleveland that he was on with Betty White. You took everything. I haven't seen that. Uh, I've seen like one. I've seen like one. (laughs) Oh, his, uh, there's a, I'm not a, I was not a huge fan of the show, but there is a funny like episode where uh, the Betty White character is talking about, um, you know, I, he won't go downtown. Now the innuendo is there, right? And then all of a sudden, at the very end of the episode, Carl Reiner's character pops up and goes like, all right, I'm willing to try going downtown. And then they actually mean going downtown to a restaurant. And it's like, so like, he still was popping all the, all those years down the line. Um, Carl, Carl, actually, I just, I found out about Carl before Mel because, um, you and I connected because of the Jack Benny convention, obviously. And when you're into Jack Benny, you've got to, by proxy, be involved in George oh, Burns' yes. uh, life. Because uh, that's an unavoidable. And the first George Burns movie I ever saw was Oh God. And it's still, I would argue, still one of the funniest looks on religion that's ever existed like a lot of people will call it soft on it but i'm like if you read the text by avery corman and you read that like read the script as it's laid out like it's not it's it's very much uh making a comment on organized religion and talking about faith in general and i'm not a religious person so i just look at the the context of it is very hilarious to me like and having george burns playing god is absolutely hysterical I don't know if you need it for two sequels where Carl's not directing it, but I'm not going to judge George Burns because one, he's dead, and two, I have no reason Wait, to like, judge George Burns. Why, like, <laughs> you get a role like God, and why give it up? Yeah, I know exactly. Like he 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 ran it to the point where he played the devil. It's it's yeah. insane. Um, but yeah, like I found out about Carl that way, and I didn't get to the Dick Van Dyke show till college. Oh, like really? that took me a while. Like, yeah, for me, Dick Van Dyke was. Mary Poppins, I did not. I just assumed that was something he created, and I'm like, okay, well, that I'm that may not be for me. Then I learn about the Dick Van Dyke show and what it's supposed to be. Um, actually, I believe I first started watching it uh, a few years before I met the real nerds, who I ended up, you know, working with. And um, uh, but yeah, they. Um, well, actually, no. I had seen episodes of the show on yeah. Nick at Night. Okay, so yeah, no. So I had seen it, but I just didn't give any yeah. credence. Um, but so anyway, uh, I... Uh, uh, but learning about Carl um, and Mel together didn't happen until the 2,000-year-old man came into my life, um, which kind of happened around, the I want to say, the freshman year, soft, beginning of sophomore year of high school, 
and I found the CDs. I listened to them, and I I could not stop rewinding them. Um, like in the CD player that I had, or eventually getting into an iPod and putting them in there, and just labeling all the tracks. Going like, no, these bits are specific. Like the Peruvian psychiatrist, you know the, you know the 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 intricacies of those albums is wonderful, and so I just took it very seriously. Um, but so yeah, I mean, Mel. Mel's form of humor, like Mel's form of humor, is is very uh, in keeping with the other entertainers that I appreciate from the past. Um, but it's also an it's but it's also a reason to branch out because you can't stay in the same hole forever. Why not? Um, we're, no. We're, <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I would love for clean humor to still yeah. work, but I I do believe in pushing oh, yeah. boundaries. To, to an appropriate mm -hmm. extent, um, you know, like, it, it, there's a limit to how much you push a button before it just yeah. becomes, you know, taunting and mean. And I think that intelligent comedy is able to transcend that and still push the boundary it needs to. Um, and I think that Mel, uh, I think that Mel's humor, what it does is it, it does force questions out of you. But he's not a traditional stand-up like Steve Martin was. And he's not like a traditional TV comic like Jack. He's a writer. Yeah. So he's looking at it from a different philosophical perspective. He's not looking at it from the uh, from the element of a performer. If anything, like the material he's given as a performer, he's having he's having to act. He's having to play a character. So that's what yeah. he's bringing into it. Um, so yeah, like so yeah, I would say like if you found him at high school and college, I'm actually interested to know how that <laughs> affected your viewpoint of him because. I feel I've always felt like if you find him at an early age, it uh, sticks with you longer. If you find him when you're older, as the world is changing, it might be tough to sit with. I, I um, don't know. I I was I'm trying to go back to what I was thinking back then. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Time has not been what kind he, to any of us. What is time? <laughs> no, it's, it's an abstract right. concept. As uh, in, in the <laughs> As Hannibal Bur as Hannibal Burris said in Tag. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, I I think I think I started off with Young Frankenstein, so uh, mm -hmm. I saw kind of I saw promotions. I saw him like go whenever. When was that? When was he promoting that? Yeah, Young do you remember? The, oh, the you mean the musical? Like the musical no, version? they have like a re-release or something, or like the anniversary or something, and like went around and oh, he like started oh. promoting it on like talk shows. And uh, yeah, I think that would have been a TCM thing if that. What, I don't that know was if it was. I think it was like I don't know. Maybe maybe it was, but it was. Uh, it, oh gosh, he just like started going on talk shows, and I was like, I was aware of who Mel Brooks was, but I only kind of knew him mm -hmm. as like Carl Reiner's friends. I hadn't really seen his movies because like I never saw I never saw them like available back at Blockbuster Blockbuster days, and never saw them and uh, never saw them like just around. So I was like, oh okay, like it's available now, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, his, well, his, his, um, his filmography is, I think it's not the first thing you're going to see in the blockbuster aisle. I think you're going to, you're going to be, you're, you're, when you're younger, you're going to be, you're going to be trended towards like something that looks a little bit more newer. Like the, the thing about 
Mel's films as they stood in a blockbuster was that they still had their original theatrical poster packaging for the most part. Um, so it doesn't look like something that like, I certainly wouldn't have grabbed it when I was younger. Like it would have been when I was around that age, when I found him where I wouldn't have cared what the poster looked like. Like there's a, there's a, there's a theory in, in movie making today when it comes to marketing that like, nobody's going to go to a movie, uh, if the poster is a drawing because they'll assume it's a cartoon. And I, that still shocks me. Cause I'm like, I don't think people are that stupid, but it would make sense as like for a kid, but like a kid's not going to go to see Slither, you know, like that's, that's, they're, they're not going to be able to get in. Uh, so like, you know, like, and that's not an exam, a direct example. That's just a, 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 a film that I've seen where artwork has been done for it. Well, I'm like, that's great artwork. I would love that to be the poster for the movie. Um, uh, but yeah, so like, you yeah, know, it makes sense. But like, but once you found him, like what, what ended up being your reaction to the comedy? Like, I, I think I was more like, I love um, breaking the fourth wall smartly, mm -hmm. and I like, um, I like how he takes something that, like, you know, is like, he takes something offensive and makes it not offensive in a way like I mean to PC standards if you show someone if you see mm -hmm. somebody that's if you show it to somebody that's like doesn't understand historical context or understand the context of which it was made then like I don't think you're gonna get it but I think if you know that going into it you're you're fine you're like oh my god this is hilarious I understand what he's trying to yeah. convey yeah. Yeah. Well, that but that's good because then that means that you're well. well one, it, it indicates intelligent viewing. Um, I I do a show where I I <laughs> as of now, as of this week, we've started letting out the air out of some people's um, you know legacy balloons because um, we did the searchers, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's a tough film to talk about because there's a lot of terrible mm -hmm. shit in it. But um, uh, but. In terms of like comedy in general, too, yeah, because you know the I think that when you when you approach a controversial subject in any circumstance, it's ultimately going to depend on the viewer's comfortability, and they are more than justified to express yeah. their distaste. But so long as they're not trying to ban me from right. watching it, um, that's where that's where I would draw the line and be like, "I sorry, you're not allowed mm -hmm. to talk here," because um, like that that's that's where it gets tricky and. I, I I think that with Mel's comedy, I think what he it feels like through his films, first and foremost, he's a humanist, but he also understands how humans are super flawed, as they are also can also be super good. Um, there's a the running there's a running theme in his films that all extends to greed and money, yeah. um, which end up being these you know very particular vices for mm -hmm. the most part. Um, it starts at the beginning and it virtually goes into the end. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've watched Dracula Den and loving That's it, but the one I, I haven't seen you know, it. I want to so bad. Oh, it, it's so much better than people give it credit for. It's not, I don't think it's his best movie, but it's still a fun movie. Um, I like Leslie Nielsen in a lot because he works well with Mel's mm -hmm. style. Yeah. 
He's playing it straight. He's doing the. He's he's stepping a little bit outside of the Zucker range where he's playing it straight for the comedy. That's what he did with the Zuckers. Here he's laying in a little bit more, and I feel like there's a little bit more attention paid to this is Mel's world, not the yeah. Zucker's world. Um, and also, if this is the last movie he ends up directing, which more than likely, un- unfortunately, this will be. Um, I mean, unless unless Mr. Brooks wants to prove me wrong, which I would love him to, because I will buy right? all the tickets. But um, uh, yeah, but he uh, he has the last word in the movie, and if there is going to be a bookend to his or like a, a finality to his career, him having the last word as Professor Van Helsing is the best way to go out. Um, yeah. Although, if you count the producers remake, he does also have the last word there, um, and it in a way, in a lot of ways it's actually better. But um, but yeah, no, I I think that when you push that boundary, like Blazing Saddles is like the obvious example. Blazing Saddles is the one that, even today, not everybody knows how to feel about it. Um, there's um, there's more than enough love and support and admiration for that film. I've also heard other people express their opinions on how it portrays things, and I understand mm-hmm. them completely. Oh, yeah. It's not lost on me at all, and I, in a lot of senses, I can, I agree with them from a modern mm-hmm. context because I'm, you know, I'm I'm of an age where you know I'm learning and discovering new things and especially the last four years has taught me a lot of things and uh but i also am aware that there is no malice when it comes to mel he's not trying to hurt anybody and so like and i do take that into account when when i ingest something um and i think that mel's heart is not only in the right place but it beats so loud that it would be very hard for me to ever try and tell somebody like this is too offensive. And also like, I don't, I haven't believed that really since I was a kid. Like, I think that there's the difference between being offensive for comedy's sake and being offensive for, I'm going to express my opinion and not care about what other people think of me. Like there's a, there's oh, a difference, yeah. you know? Um, and, um, and, but like, and then, but there's also like a lot of films of his that aren't in that same mm-hmm. zone Con- of, yeah. Uh, controversy. They are just rather yeah. silly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I love that but they have kind of like off the walls kind of kind of humor. I mean, when I started watching Conan, mm-hmm. that was kind of like why I liked Conan because, like, especially early Conan, like, is just so wacky. <laughs> There's a that, speaking of humor that could be touchy today, but it's still zany as all heck. Um, Early Conan, I don't know how early. It's not super early, but he had a ghost that would come on the show. It was the ghost of a radio announcer. <laughs> um, and, oh, it's I don't remember the name of it. I'd have to look it up. You are talking about, and I don't really remember yeah. it about it, but, yeah. He, the, the, uh, I'm not going to say what the ghost okay. says, yeah. but oh, uh, he, <laughs> he, He's he yeah, but the long story short is it's like it's a it's a ghost of a radio announcer from the 30s or 40s, and he's singing little ditties, and they each one ends up being more offensive than the last. (laughs) And Conan is responding with "You're a terrible, terrible person." Like I know that's why my wife shot me. (laughs) Like that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And he it like it always ends on the same alteration of a joke like you'll see the consistency actually i'll send you the link i I don't have it yeah um it's like but it's that's an example of boundary pushing within the limits and like 
an audience recognizing yeah. and understanding. Mel the, and Mel's zaniness and the fourth wall breaking, I think that's what appeals yes. to you at first with Mel. Like that's that's certainly what hooked me. I'm going like, why are they talking Mommy. to me? Like <laughs> that was my first instance of it apart from Looney Tunes. And my reasoning for Looney Tunes doing that was yeah, they're cartoon yeah, characters. Yeah. Of course they're they do this. Like, anything. Yeah. They're they're not real, yeah. but like real people yeah. doing this, this seems ridiculous. I think like I think I'm definitely Spaceballs was the first one to do it, and I don't think I fully grasped the concept. Yeah. But um, when when I first saw Blazing Saddles, and you get that shot that uh, it's a it's this beautiful god shot oh, yeah. exterior wide going up, and then passing the passing the western set and going through the yeah. hills, and you see the Warner Brothers Studios, and you push uh -huh. in, and then the moment you hear. Throw out your hands, stick out your tush, hands on your hips, give them a push. Like that—that's that, when the—that's when the brain just snaps, like, and you're just like, "What? Where did we go?" Yeah. And then when you rewatch the film, yeah, ex exactly. And then you understand if you rewatch the film, you also understand they—they've been setting yeah. this up. It's just small little things, like. You know, like uh, uh, Cleavon Little riding through, like riding into town the first day, and the Count Basie band is playing in, in the middle of the desert for no reason. Um, and actually, Mel's also one of those people who can get away with the most childish gag and make it sound intelligent and make it look intelligent. Um, there's a, a there's a scene in Blazing. There's a yeah. There's a scene in Blazing Saddles uh, that still astounds me to this day that it works. Um, it's right after Cleavon Livla has arrived in town. They've all got their guns drawn on him. Uh, the pastor has already said, son, you're on your own. And he just pulls a yes. gun on himself and goes, hold oh it. Next one that makes a move, he gets it. I'm not going to use the word he uses. And, and then suddenly Doc, uh, uh, David Huddleston goes, hold it, man. He's not bluffing. No. <laughs> Hush, Harriet, that's a sure way to get him killed. Like, I mean, and, for people that like don't haven't watched the film, it sounds like we're nuts right now because like, it, <laughs> it, it's just so hard to explain that he's like pulling the gun on himself and talking about yeah, himself and, and, in the third person. <laughs> yeah, and like basically holding himself hostage. And <laughs> the, the context he's he's trying to escape this mob of uh, mob of white <laughs> <Right>. idiots. <laughs> By by hiding in the, in the sheriff's office and <laughs> my my the capper on it is when he's about to get in the building goes help me help me somebody help me help me shut up and then he grabs his own mouth and pulls himself inside and that's like an example of Cleavon Little knowing how to work with the material I, I it's a shame that he didn't work with yeah. Mel Moore um and then and Gene in that movie too like actually. I think a good entry point for anybody with Mel is one of the Gene films. And like one of the Gene films is on my top three. Um, and I think that combination is also a, a good, like Young Frankenstein is like your best entry point beyond like the three that I would recommend. Cause like it is, it sums up everything and it's also like a beautiful yeah. piece of art. Um, yeah. What was the one that you were going to say though? I, I interrupted you. <laughs> I don't, Wait, what were we talking about? <laughs> I think we were talking about like the zany and the absurd. Like I thought you were gonna say you had a favorite one. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I think the second one I watched was Spaceballs. But what I, I feel, um, you were saying like a, a good entry point, 
is um, yeah like the, oh, yeah, the no, break, yeah. breaking the fourth wall is cut, like that intro for a lot of yeah, people that's... and like just today i found i was scrolling through facebook and somebody like had a robin hood men in tights like um you know, not meme, whatever. The like the little I don't know. Mm. I'm I'm not gonna explain the internet to people, but <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I got, well no, actually no but more power to you. I keep trying to and nobody'll <laughs> listen to me. It, it was the it was showing, It's it was, stupid. It was That's the spoiler. Um, the pictures of him like like he's like, I'm lost and he like pulls out the script and like uh, Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> Where's the script? <laughs> Where's the script? Wait a minute. He gets right. another shot. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. And in the comments, somebody was like, oh my gosh, what is this film? I need to watch it. And I was, I of course responded. I'm like, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Gotta watch it. <laughs> yeah. that And, and actually, like, it, that's a film that I'm glad has stuck around as much as it has. Because I've heard some people try and recall it and go like it's not as good as i remember and i'm like you're lying to yourself like i mean like it's it's i mean it's okay to grow out of things but i'm just like i guys don't please don't take this away right. from me like I, I, I don't <laughs> or like it's don't, my favorite don't, like it, it's not my no, favorite but... by a long stretch and like i was i won't i wasn't bored but like i didn't I don't like you're saying like it's not as good as like I remember, but I'm sure if I watched it, I would laugh. Crazy. Yeah, it's you know what it is. It's a very good afternoon. I've got nothing to mm-hmm. do. Movie, and those and those are perfectly legitimate things to enjoy. Like I mean, like I, if it was like if I still had network television and I had a TV or like cable TV and I had a TBS. And it was playing on there. I would sit down no matter where it is, even if it's in the last five minutes. I'll be like, "Yeah, the next five minutes are for Mel right now." Um, but yeah, like so that that all those elements that Mel brings to it, whether it's that fourth wall breaking or that zany irreverence or his attention to these human themes, like I think it all kind of it. I think it ended up forming the way I look at humor, and it also allowed me to basically appreciate all its forms and i think mel's very good at doing that because he asks you to appreciate the new boundary Mm -hmm. pushing and he also asks you to take a look at the humor that used to work and can still work when done correctly now he worked on sid caesar's show he knows how sketch comedy works he's not he's not inept to that in fact there's a lot of moments in his movies that if somebody were to complain that it feels like a sketch, and I'm like, because it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's not lying to you. Do you know what he yeah, used to like, do? You know what, <laughs> yeah. You know where he got his start, really? <laughs> yeah. I think, I actually, like, I think it, I have a feeling that, I have a feeling that when people look at his later films, they don't understand that the first two films he made are not um, strictly, uh, satires or parodies um or spoofs whatever whatever terminology people want to use i'm not gonna i'm not gonna tell them <laughs> their lives. but um i f- i find it to be like a, a like a form of satire or a form of parody i feel like spoof is not respecting the material you're lampooning whereas i think like mel has respect for the western genre i think he has res- he definitely has respect oh, yeah. for hitchcock because if you look at high anxiety hitchcock 
is is adorned and admired in that movie to heaven. Like the humor doesn't come from making fun of Hitchcock. It comes from isolating and commenting on the tro- the visual tropes and the story tropes of mm-hmm. Hitchcock while still following right. the rules. Um, like the a great scene is underneath the coffee table uh, where you see Nurse Diesel and um, uh, Harvey Corman talking about how they're going to get rid of Thorndike. And this is a Hitchcock shot where you'd see things oh, from yeah. a different perspective, from a perspective you're not supposed to see. And they keep putting food on top of where the camera's supposed yeah. to be. And then finally, Nurse Diesel uh, pushes, like, has some more strudel and they just put block the scene entirely. Um, so, like, yeah, that he respects the material he's doing but the first but those first two films right. are not are, are not even trying to do that yeah uh <laughs> and like i i you definitely know that like he respects it because like wasn't hitchcock at like the opening of that he got a yeah. screening of it so hitchcock um he actually gave the script yeah. to hitchcock right. and he had a um uh, and this is not like something I've recently discovered. Like I've discovered on my own. This is something that Mel talks yeah. about all the time in special features on this. And I did a whole series on Hitchcock, so high anxiety yes. came up. And um, the uh, his he showed the script to him, and Hitchcock said he liked it, and he had a suggestion for an idea of a man is being chased, and he has to hop across a barge. He he nearly like he's about to jump. He jumps. He makes it, but the barge is going back towards where the people are chasing him or catching up to him, and they shoot him dead. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Mel was like, that's great. And I'm like, yes, it is. And I'm so sad that you didn't find a way to put what? it in the movie. <laughs> um, but uh, and uh, but then he screened the yes. film for him. Um, and Hitchcock like didn't yeah. really react too much or laugh. Um, he got... Um, he did. I apparently he got a good kick out of the uh, the birds the birds joke because that's a good kid joke. <laughs> like it's a really good like that's a good way to make fun of the birds. And but then he got up and he walked out. Mm-hmm. And he said nothing. And Mel's worried. He's yeah, like, oh my, he he, yeah. he he hated it. He hated to ruin it. Goes back the next day to his office and he's got uh, Chateau Ombrion on his desk. And I'm not a wine guy, but I'm gonna take Mel's word for it that it's an amazing wine. And Hitch Hitch had wrote us uh, wrote a um, uh, note that said, "Have no fear, ha- no need to have high anxiety. The movie is wonderful." And that's how he knew he got, he had one Hitch over. And um, so yeah, like, and uh, there was something that I thought was funny of Hitchcock critiquing the shower scene because apparently he critiqued the number of edits and the number of setups for it. And I was like. Yeah, but Hitch, stop it! <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't do that. Um, actually, actually, that's another great moment. Uh, in Mel history is um high anxiety the shower scene with <laughs> yes. So here's the here's the setup for people who haven't seen this movie. It's a it's a parody of the Janet Lee scene in Psycho and. They start off, it's Barry Levinson, by the way, Oscar-winning director Barry Levinson. He got his start with Mel, and he is playing a bellboy named Dennis, and Mel keeps saying, I need to get a paper as he's bringing him up to his room, and he keeps reminding him, and Dennis is getting annoyed. All right, all right, already. And then, like, as he leaves, 
in the room entirely. He goes like, it's very important. He goes, all right, what's so important about a lousy, crummy newspaper? And he gets really high pitched. Then he goes down and the hotel clerk says, oh, Dennis, there's a man in 214 who goes, I know. Get the newspaper. Get the newspaper. Get the stinking newspaper. Mel goes in to take a shower. It's the whole Janet Lee Psycho setup. And then from the curtains, you can see the figure approaching like you do in Psycho. The curtain opens and it's Barry Levinson with a newspaper and he starts stabbing Mel with it and going, here, here, here's your paper. Here's your paper. The pitch on Barry Levinson's voice is astounding. He, I have never heard... It's like um, it's 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 like a sonic sound that only bat- bats and dogs can hear, or something like that. Just like literally reeking your ears, and then the payoff on it is they do the eye shot with Janet, and but like you would with Janet, and they pull back, and he goes, "That boy gets right. no tip." <laughs> <laughs> it's just astounding. Like again, like we are like w- here we are like with Mel talking about our favorite scenes like that's kind of the joy of it is like you can pull out pretty yeah. any pretty much any moment and it'll give you a giggle just by yes. thinking about it it's very you know it's like it's all kinds of humor it's satire there's physical humor there's even potty humor there's like there's all kinds of yeah. humor like every kind of humor like you know it's like that old like vaudeville thing like if you don't like this like just wait a moment like yeah he gives you variety. I do think he gives you variety. He's even got music in it. Like he, 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 he knows how to give an experience to people on the comedy realm. I think that that's the ultimate thing is that he knows how to make a mm-hmm. comedy movie, and that's oh. not easy. Like making a comedy is harder than making a drama. I generally make I generally make dramas with short with my short films. I I could not try to make a comedy if you asked. Really? Like it'd be too hard. It'd be too hard. I I. I don't think I have it in me to do. I tried when I was younger. I really tried. Like you can ask people that I went to film school with, um, that I still podcast with. You know, they saw me try to do it, and then the ended up, the result ended up being I found a story that was lent more toward dramatic, and then I just started doing that because I knew how to read mm-hmm. that, read that, uh, read that genre better. Mm-hmm. Um, and and now I have better ways to tell stories I want to tell through that genre. I try to put humor into it, but it ends up being dark humor, so that's why people respond yeah. to it that way. Um, but I don't think I could even have the audacity to try a dark joke like that if it wasn't for yeah. looking at the producers and being like, "Well, this is the ultimate dark joke." Yeah. Like this is this is. I mean, obviously, we've had ones that are even darker. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Borat's subsequent movie film is the latest example of like what happens when you push the boundary, and and it's great. Uh, but like. To this day, I still feel like the producers is like this dark joke that you either get it or you don't. <laughs> um, and uh, and I would understand why people would have hesitancy towards it because it <laughs> there's a lot in the concept that is so outrageous that I c- <laughs> I would understand if somebody would go like this seems like this seems abhorrent and tasteless. I'm like, yeah, it is. Now leave the room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh-huh. Going to my list of questions that I noisily, I'll noisily pull out. Because <laughs> that's how it... <laughs> it's a paper attack. We're being attacked by paper. <laughs> so, like, whenever I'm editing this, I'm like, oh, man, I hear my paper. Oh, so I'll, just, I'll just make a thing of it and, like, it, wait it around. Wait, wait, keep the sound. Ladies and gentlemen, this just updated. President Kennedy has been assassinated off on the grassy knoll. Um... Kennedy dead. 
at noon this afternoon. And then they just hear a silence across the room. Uh, uh, actually, I, actually, this is not comedy related, but I was listening to some Edward R. Murrow uh, programs not too long ago. And you can kind of hear activity in the yeah. background. <laughs> like, you can hear the, the news desk. And I'm like, this is a radio version, though. Like, they're not in the news studio. What's going on here? And like, I think it's because they're changing into the different clips <laughs> that they're playing for his Here It Now yeah, program. I mean, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's interesting. Like, mm. I've I've worked in news, and so it's like it's kind of like uh, this isn't really related to the audio, but I, I used to work in a market where they, um, you know, they showed like the newsroom behind like the the anchor desk, and yeah. Um, this wasn't a station I worked at, but like I thought that was the dumbest place to put it because not because like oh like normally I'd be like yeah that's cool, but there was never anyone there ever, <laughs> and so I'm like you're supposed to be like showing that you're like, busy and that you guys are actually doing stuff, and it's like there's never anyone in the newsroom. Was it was. What 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 was maybe maybe their excuse that you never heard while working there was like well no there's a ghost back there hope he's running the monitor that's the, he died 15 years ago but we still see him we still love him too. <laughs> like, I totally know the effect that they're going for because they have it in like you know like mm -hmm. all the big networks they have like those shots where like you can kind of see some activity going on in the background but I just thought it looked sad. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to be a big boy station i swear <laughs> uh, you know and it wasn't like you know I, there's like these rinky dink markets but this was like tulsa oklahoma like it's not that's a rather large city like it deserves some activity in the background right, there like, okay. it's called it's called production value <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that they've improved it but it's done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Off topic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was wondering, you know, when I was creating these questions, I was like having so much fun that I was like, oh my gosh, I ha I can create my own like little Mel Brooks class now. Like, like <laughs> here's his influences. And, like, because I took a Woody Allen class in college. And yeah, so like mm -hmm. I was like, oh. I would love to go through like Mel, uh, Mel Brooks's influences. What would a Mel Brooks class like look like for you? Uh, if we're talking about learning like the techniques from him, um, oh god, that's a very good question. Um, I think learning silent film would be a very important mm -hmm. part of it. Um, there's physicality in Mel's work that I think is unmatched, and it's um. There's a lot of uh, study of thought that direct a good director is good at blocking. Uh, Spielberg gets this comment um, passed his way more than once, and it's true. He's very good at blocking. Um, Mel has blocking that relates the character's emotions without the dialogue, and then the dialogue is like icing on top of this cake. Um, I think that if you were going to show, like, let's say you show a Chaplin movie or a Buster Keaton movie beforehand, 
Then watch the scene in Max Bialystok's office where uh, in the producers where Gene is going through the bu- Leo is going through the books and tells him the scheme. Like he tells him what the idea is. Is like, you know, a producer can make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. The blocking in that is so manic and so out of its mind. There is there is a couple of things at play there, and I think that understanding how slapstick works, starting with silent and going up into the late 40s, would help you understand how he's able to block out a scene, how he's able to communicate the language of manic nonsense. There's a language to nonsense. You just have to realize that it's consistent of a lot of things that do make sense to people on an emotional level. Um I think another one would be understanding limitations because we talked about breaking the fourth wall. He doesn't do it all the time. In fact, it seems like he saves that only for when it's needed. And I think that restraint is a very good thing because he also knows when to pull back. He also knows when a scene's getting too silly and it needs to be sincere for the moment mm-hmm. that's happening. Um, and also, at times, I get the feeling that a scene that plays off as silly is actually sincere. Um, like... Uh, a great scene. Uh, there's two great moments that exemplify this. One is, uh, have you seen the Twelve yeah. Chairs at all? Yeah. Okay, the Twelve Chairs. For anybody who doesn't know, it's a it's a story based out of post uh, post revolutionary Russia, where a former uh, a, a former aristocrat of the of of Russia's royalty. Uh, has a mother-in-law who dies and reveals that she sewed the family jewels into one of 12 chairs that they owned when they were of nobility. And he goes on a quest with um, a, a, a street a street con artist to track down the chairs. And it's uh, Ron Moody and Frank Langella. And there's, a, there's two moments in the movie. One is the setup for it, and then the other is the payoff at the end. But when... Uh, Frank Langella tells Ron Moody, I need you to fake having a seizure so that we can make money. Because the idea is if he fakes a seizure on the ground, he can, uh, Frank Langella can be like, epilepsy, the same thing that took our beloved Tolstoy. Give, give from the bottom of your heart. And that scene is played for laughs. By the end of the movie, spoilers for the 12 chairs, I'm sorry, but um, Ron Moody is basically left by Frank Langella. He's like, I can't afford you, old man. I can't afford you. And uh, our quest is over. We didn't get the chairs. And Ron Moody then gets on the ground and starts shaking. And he attracts a crowd. And Frank Langella doesn't notice at first. And then he goes back and he sees that Ron Moody is doing the seizure and his light clicks off. It, it, the light clicks off for two things. Number one, he can make money again, which is, you know, obviously yeah. that's, <laughs> that's important if you want to eat. But number two, he's like, I can't let this man, old man go. Like he needs me. Like he he literally has no other idea of how to live apart from having somebody around him. And that's when he he doesn't say anything to solidify the friendship. All he says is epilepsy, epilepsy. He goes back into his con artist spiel. So it's if as if though they're going to be partners mm-hmm. for life. Um, the other one, which is a moment that's that makes me cry a lot now because of Gene passing uh is at the end of blazing saddles when cleavon little is about to ride off and he passes by gene wilder who at this point has broken the fourth wall completely by eating movie theater popcorn in the 1800s and uh he goes uh where are you headed and cleavon goes nowhere special and 
uh, Gene Wilder tips his hat up and goes, nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. And then they just ride off. And that, that's a funny moment. But now as Gene's dead, I'm like, this is goddamn making me cry. Um, and so like, I think that you have to understand that humor is not played solely for laughs. It should come from relatability to those characters, knowing when to pull back on the silly and embrace that there is sincerity. Something that I think you'd be surprised at in a Mel Brooks movie is how much it can make you feel. I think that like history of the world part one might be the exception because it is literally a series of sketches that you could have seen on Sid Caesar show and it's fun, but it's not, it's not aiming for anything above what it is. Um, but like, I mean, Spaceballs has, has its moments, but like, if you really look at the ones where he's, you know, trying a different idea or experimenting with something, he's going to teach you about how human natural human emotion and human behavior and when to pull back on the silly and embrace the sad is essential to that comedy. Um, and then I, I think the other thing would be respect for the genres you're going to tackle. If you're going to go doing his, um, his line of filmmaking. Um, I think there's a lineage for most filmmakers uh, from the past. Even if they're not drawing from it, they have innately learned something through the through that yeah. connection. Um, like I, I do it on my show all the time. And when it comes to Mel, Mel is part of a lineage that starts with Ernst Lubitsch. Ernst Lubitsch starts with the idea of pushing those boundaries. And he does it primarily with To Be or Not To Be. But he also does it with Shop Around the Corner and Ninochka. Mm -hmm. That's a movie that that pushes a huge boundary that I didn't think was possible until I saw it. And I was like, Oh my God, they got away with that. Um, Cause it's, 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 it's pro communist guys, <laughs> or, or it's not, it's not anti-communist, but it's not pro communist, but it's somehow they circumvented the censors. Um, but Mel, then it goes into Mel and then Mel has gone on to inspire, I'd argue Taika Waititi. Uh, and it's not just because of Jojo rabbit. If you've seen um, hunt for the will to people, he's drawing off of Mel Brooks tropes embracing a concept that has been utilized for saccharine like indie dramas or indie dramedies he's made it into just a full-blown full comedy with the same tropes about like helping an adopted kid get back to the orphanage <laughs> like that that kind of mentality and you can definitely see it in thor and love and thunder and you def and obviously jojo rabbit is the oh, big yeah. example so so i do think that if you learn to respect the genre and understand where these things started and where they're going, I think that should be a part of Mel class, as it should be for any class. But I think with Mel especially, because all of his films, to some extent or another, tackle a genre of film. They may not be parodying a movie, but they're tackling a genre of film. So, like, The Producers is a showbiz comedy. It's making fun of show business as its form, but it also kind of makes a comment about showbiz comedies in general, like the put them on a show attitude. In this case, they're trying to put on the worst show. Uh, the 12 chairs kind of makes fun of historical epics or uh, sincere art dramas while still being an art piece, because there's shots in that movie that look like a painting. Um, and then you get into life stinks, which is a direct commentary on eighties capitalism and uh, the overcome overconsumption and consumerism. So like there's, I think that there's a respect of just understanding the art form of the thing you're mm -hmm. doing because he's talked about it in interviews where he's like, I'm a movie fan. I love these movies. I use the Hitchcock example the most because I'm just like, this is an example of how much he cares about filmmaking. It's not just 
I don't want to denigrate. I would not want to denigrate another like other filmmakers per se, but like some, I, I feel like some comedies are only going for yeah. the laugh. I think Mel's. I think Mel's going for more. It's just that laughs are the predominant form right. of this entertainment. I think it has more long longevity that way when you're going for like a little mm -hmm. bit more deeper emotion because like for most of the comedies that have come out in the past like ten ten years, I'd say. Uh, you don't remember them past like their cycle of 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 the mm -hmm. year, you know. So. I think yeah, I think it depends, but yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And the last ten years has been are arguably bereft of them, um, and now there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think that Mel, I, it's it's a shame that Mel isn't directing today because I would love to see what he what he brings out. I don't know how well it would work. But I would still want to see it. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, I kind of wrapped up what I would put in the Mel Brooks class, but I think that there is this added note of embracing insanity mm -hmm. that brings forth sanity in the mm -hmm. process. Um, I'll tell you that, like, I have a lot of things in my life that I turn to to comfort me when I'm feeling mentally distressed, which ends up being 99% of the day. Um, and Mel's films hit a certain spot in me of, of kind of like blossoming forth an imagination that I don't always feel is possible. Um, but what's funny is, is that like, I don't think I would be a fan of mystery science theater if I wasn't a fan of Mel Brooks mm -hmm. first, because Mel Brooks was the first person I saw who made a movie that then decided to disrespect itself for five minutes by breaking the fourth wall and going to Warner Brothers in 1974. <laughs> like that, that's where I'm just like, oh yeah, they, these are make-believe. I, I don't have to I don't have to put in the same amount of sincerity as others might, but I can still respect that form and treat it with that respect while still understanding like it's a movie. Yeah. You know? He he reminds you that a movie yeah. is a movie. And like that and that's fun because not everything is going to be an mm -hmm. art piece. And he exemplifies how you can do that in an artful way by going like, look, I'm going to start you off in 1874 and then I'm going to bring you up to 1974 and I'm going to have Harvey Corman named Hedley <laughs> Lamar <laughs> running through a theater going raisinets. Uh, you dropped your beads going in, seeing that he's supposed to be part of the climax at the end and going and then getting out and then <laughs> and then as he dies, look looks down and sees Douglas Fairbanks' uh, handprints and goes, how did he do such terrific stunts with such small feet? Why is that line in the movie? It doesn't matter. I heard a story about that, but I can't remember what it is. I would love to know this story because I have not heard yeah, that at all. It's been such a long time. I don't remember. I will have to look this up because I'm sure it exists somewhere on a podcast or something. Yeah. It, well, the good news about Mel's also is that he documents his yeah. stuff really well. Um, and I, I think that a, a cool thing about what Mel has done is that he isn't afraid to talk about his own legacy and he's proud of it. Like it's a, that's a form of self pride that I don't <laughs> possess, but, um, or like when I talk about it, I tend to criticize myself and praise the people around me because I'm just like, yeah, they are actually doing all the hard work. Like, I'm just standing here talking. Like, <laughs> like here, you're doing the correct job. You're listening politely. 
Um, and, uh, uh, but I, yeah, of course, like, and I mean it because like I ramble on like an idiot, but, uh, I think that, uh, something that of Mel's also that we don't talk about a lot or like when we do, we think of only the producers, but he's a hell of a songwriter. I was like looking at he's, some of the stuff that he's written for these movies, and I was just like, "There is a lot of good stuff here that he's written." Like, yeah, and there's and that was what I was going to add to the. I sh- I should have added that to the to the master class on Mel Brooks because he learned this apparently from the Marx Brothers, which is like the Marx Brothers. If you know anything about them, they're something that's essential to their films is music, mm-hmm. like. You can look at any Marx Brothers movie. You'll see a musical number in there somewhere, except for like Horse Feathers. And, oh, no, not Horse Feathers. I'm sorry. Um, monkey oh. Business. Monkey Business. Horse Feathers, ha- Horse Feathers has one of the yeah, best songs, which is Everyone Says I Love You. <laughs> how, how am I forgetting my favorite Marx Brothers movie? Yeah, no, Mel's songs, like, they start, like, as, it, as his career has taken off, it starts off with provocation and then it ends with the world embracing that provo- provocative nature like because springtime for hitler is one of the greatest songs ever written it's also one of the hardest songs to to like to, to sh- tell people like this is one of the great songs but if you don't know what the, what it what the context yeah. is it's going to oh, sound yeah. offensive <laughs> i wanted i wanted so badly okay i must have it must have been high school like my senior year of high school when i found mel because i was wanted to so badly play that at school but i knew mm-hmm. that like no one no one would like that or understand it or anything <laughs> the only reason um i i think that i i, I think that when you try to do that uh I think that a few years ago would have been easier. I think it's a little tougher now and rightfully so because there's been some things that have come to light, but you know, like I, I have no problem singing that song aloud because then if somebody were to ask, I would stop them for five minutes and be like, here's the context of this piece. And then they, then they might understand it. Now, if they didn't, I would totally understand why they think I'm a terrible human being. But, um, but, uh, also, um, uh, in 12 chairs hope for the best except the worst is one of the great anthems for how life functions um and and he apparently wrote that because he was trying to think of a way to open up and and bancroft ended up giving him the inspiration Mm -hmm. for it um and then blazing saddles has i mean that's a that's a great title song sung by frankie lane and i don't think frankie lane know knew what the song was and what the movie the movie that he was covering the song for was going to be but he sings frankie he got frankie lane to sing that with all the passion that he would have on any other song (laughs) um and then uh and there's also the um uh his use of other music like put the the use of putting on the ritz which i know was not initially his Mm -hmm. idea um that was gene's insistence The fact that he allowed Gene yes. to do it is a testament to the fact that he's willing to take the chance, and then if he doesn't like it, he's yeah. gonna, you know, scrap it. Like that's his that's his prerogative. But his embracement right. of that, and now you couldn't do the musical version of Young Frankenstein on Broadway without oh, that yeah. number at all. Like it has yeah. to be there. Um, 
And then, like, also, there's like other films. Like, my favorite song of his is "High Anxiety." Yes, me too. Theme from "High Anxiety." It that is a that is a that is a song. He's making fun of yes, Frank Sinatra okay. in that. Or like, not, I wasn't he's not, alone. I was like, oh my gosh! Like, <laughs> I'm like, I wonder if like, I mean, I know obviously other people get it, but like, I'm like, if I showed that to someone like now, would they understand? And yeah. I don't. I don't think so, and it wouldn't be their fault. Like that's like that's an era of Frank. That's not the same era of Frank. Like it, it's like a it's it's like a uh within the range of the mid fifties to then when it was made era of Frank. Because there's a there's a Frank that we're aware of from beforehand with Jack, like yeah. right, in, in the Jack Benny years, where he's the skinny kid from Frank, Hoboken, yeah, like, and then eventually punching I mean, a photographer. He's huge, <laughs> but he's not like huge, like like larger yeah, than. Like, well, he's yet. he's. He he's just at that point he's a Bobby Soxer dream dream dreamboat. Mm-hmm. By this point, Sinatra's an right. institution, and him doing an impression of Sinatra is it's very spot on because he's not trying to do the voice; he's doing the right. mannerisms, and then it, that's yeah. how it comes off as Frank. Um, but also the song, it feels like having gone through the Hitchcock thing, especially, but like even before, like it just felt like a really good like anthem for like personal anxieties that i feel so it was like a nice thing to hum- to talk to myself and hum myself to mm-hmm. but uh doing the hitchcock thing there's an interesting note of it which is that hitchcock for years was trying to acquiesce to having popular songs for oh, yeah. one of his movies so like you know like a tie-in song like they were trying to do this a lot mm-hmm. in the 50s they tried it with the trouble of harry the, trouble with harry and it didn't work because the song was flagging the train to tuscaloosa and it's a great song the song that ends up doing it for Hitchcock, it almost seems like incidental is Que Sera Sera for um, The Man Who Knew Too Much, um, where you have Doris Day singing Que Sera Sera. And, um, but I would imagine that if Hitch had a song like High Anxiety, it would have been a decent hit. Something in that vein, something that is that on the nose probably would have been right up his alley. Um, but uh, but yeah, and also the scene is wonderful He's doing the dinner band, the, the 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 Catskills banter. So it's like Catskills Sinatra, um, yeah. and uh, and then the way it ends and like key change and key of E. Is there any other like that, like anytime he talks about changing keys or keys in music, like it, that's just that's a like a like a little earworm stuck in my head every day, um, and then like as you go down the line, actually they get even they get even more boundary pushing like the spanish inquisition song is out yes, of its mind the inquisition, uh, <laughs> <let's begin. laughs> the inquisition. here we go like th- there's there's lyrics in that song in the main section of that song that would be very hard to say out loud but uh <laughs> mel playing torquemada and doing uh doing a charleston essentially to to this horrible time in history is just remarkably yes. hilarious um, and also that also has the uh, uh, the Jews in space um, uh, scene at the end where they're teasing history of the world part two. And it's just this, this, this is insane anthem. <laughs> and I love every second of it because then it leads into this star Wars like epic that I would want to see. <laughs> like, um, and then uh, let's see life's uh, life stinks has a great dance number. Uh, set amidst a bunch of uh, rattered, tattered clothing and trash. 
Um, which I'm not sure if have you seen that I'm one or not. not? Okay, I you wouldn't be wrong with this because I think a lot of people have trashed this movie and I think they're wrong. I, um, I want Life to Stinks, see it. Obviously, I want to see anything of Mel. Yeah, yeah. You sh- this is one I would seek out before even Dracula Dead and loving it. Um, Life Stinks is a movie he made. Uh, to comment on poverty and homelessness in LA. And it's a very, very simple premise. Billionaire makes a bet with another billionaire that he can live 30 days um, in the slums of LA, which at the time, especially, or not even especially, it's still going on, but like there's an image of LA uh, Skid Row in the, eight, in the late 80s, early 90s that is very prevalent and something that's referenced constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there's a scene with him and Leslie Ann Warren where they're in an alley and they're falling in love with each other. And suddenly this huge pile of clothes in this warehouse that they're in, suddenly the lights pop up and they're dancing. It's two hobos dancing and it's magical. Like it's fucking magical. Sorry about the language. No, you're fine. You're fine. (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah. uh, And then Robin Hood Men in Tights obviously has the best, like the 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 one people are remembering more nowadays is where men were mm-hmm. men in tights, Romo out in the forest working for fights. I love the Marion theme too because he's sort of I don't I can't confirm this, but it feels like he's making fun of that Brian Adams song from Robin Hood Prince of Thieves oh. because I think that movie is is drawing a lot off mm-hmm. of that. And yeah, it would not surprise me if he's kind of playing off of that because when you hear it at the end especially when you hear Maid Marian and Robin Hood fighting about the chastity belt as the credits push up you start hearing like this Celine Dion or like this sincere yeah. approach to a very silly song not offensive mm-hmm. just silly like it is like it's a very sweet like Disney light mm-hmm. song but it sounds so ridiculous if you read the lyrics aloud <laughs> um and then um the producer's remake that Susan Stroman directed um, based off of the Broadway show. Mm-hmm. They added songs for that, obviously for the Broadway version, but there's also uh, end credit songs on it. And it's consistent of two key ones. One is uh, there's a song in the show called the Gutentag Hop Clop, <laughs> uh, which is has Franz Liebkin swearing in Max and Leo to produce his play, and it they are taking the Siegfried oath, uh, and uh, and the, Will Ferrell plays Hans Friedkin in this remake, and he does a Celine Dion version of Guten Tag Hopklop that is slow and deliberate and overproduced. <laughs> and it's wonderful. But the other one is the original song they wrote for, which is There's Nothing Like a Show on mm-hmm. Broadway. And it's a sincerely fun song that also comments on the state of Broadway at that time. Uh, it's like it's often been said, the theater is dead. The critics repeat it en masse. But the theater's alive. It's going to survive, although it's a pain in the ass. You waited forever. You finally got tickets. To get to, to, get to your seats, you got across pickets. The guy to your right is frightfully tight. The, uh, the guy to your left appears to have rickets. Uh, the music sucks. The lyrics, the lyrics are yuck. The casting is all wrong. And when you reach the bathroom, the mile is five miles long. But still, there's nothing like a show on Broadway. There's nothing like a yeah. Broadway show. Like So like that... He still got it all those years later, especially when he's writing with Tom Meehan. He seems to really click yeah. with the music. Um, and then, and there's ingredients to Mel's films that I think like 
it's not just Mel. It's the people oh, yeah. around him. He's he has a great sense of community and mm-hmm. repertory about him. Yes. Um, I think definitely yes. work. I definitely. I think yeah. I think a lot of his work and a lot of of the people that I admire, uh, directors, they just use the same people over and over because they know what works for them and they. No, there's yeah. a trust there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Now we uh, we haven't really talked about his remake of uh, To Be or Not to Be. Ah, yes. Yeah. Um, it should be noted that he didn't yeah. direct it. He didn't direct um, it, but I that, mean, that's... He definitely one of his. Uh, I would say his big one of his big film roles. Uh, oh like where he's like where he's the mm-hmm. lead star yeah um yeah so i first of all he, it's directed by his choreographer alan johnson who now alan johnson had worked with him all throughout um his career and i like that this remake a lot and that sounds like sacrilege because mm-hmm. the original is my exactly. one of my yes. favorite films of all time yes it's uh-huh. benny but it's also Lubitsch, and it's also making fun of Nazis. I'm not gonna. I'm. Why wouldn't this be on a list of everybody for a top five? But um, that, and that's me being <laughs> snobby. But the remake presents an, a couple interesting factors to it. Number one, you've got Mel and Anne together on screen, yeah. which is something that you're the only other time you got that was her cameo in yeah. Silent Movie, and it's not just her and Mel. It's also. Mm-hmm. Her and Mel and Dom, and her and Mel and Dom and mm-hmm. Marty. So you've got you got a it's a different situation here. They're actually doing an over exaggerated version of what their relationship might yeah. look like, and but it's obviously rooted in that original oh, yeah. script by Edwin Eustace Meyer, and uh, which is actually more like. Lubitsch wrote it and then other people like took down the notes (laughs) is what I was learning through my research. But the, the, the remake does some things that heighten the ridiculousness. And I think that that's, I think that that's where it throws people. I think in a post world war two world, there's less of an, it, it feels like there was less of a need to bring the sincerity that Lubitsch does to the original because He's making this in the middle of World War II, like just at the cu- at the precipice of World War II, at the cusp of everything going off, and he's not going to shy away from the sincerity that needs to be approached with this subject. With Mel, having done the producers, especially, he's not going to pull any punches. Well, he's I mean, certainly what are you not going to. Like he did the producers. It's, yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, and also. Uh, the film actually breaks some interesting boundary, and I and I know that this is not. Uh, this is not this is not like the uh, this is this may seem like disingenuous. I don't know, but like this is a fact that I learned in college, and it kind of blew my hair back. Which is this is one of the first movies in uh at least on American stateside to acknowledge the persecution of homosexuals in the Holocaust. Now, when you talk about the portrayal of homosexual characters in Mel's films, it gets Mm -hmm. tricky because the stereotype is outdated. 
Um, and I don't find it hurtful. Um, but I'm a straight guy, so I don't, I, I have really no reason to talk. <laughs> so, um, but it's interesting that he made a movie that comments on something that no one was really privy to or nobody even thought about. Um, and the other element of it that I don't think can be uh, overlooked is that this this is kind of astounding is that so Charles Charles Durning plays Colonel Earhart in the movie and he got nominated for a best supporting actor Golden Globe for this movie which it's the Golden Globes are divided as such that supporting actor and actress aren't divided by category so out of out of all the people in 1983 <laughs> that could have been nominated for best supporting actor at the Golden Globes Charles Durning is picked for to be or not to be <laughs> It's interesting yeah, to say the least, and I know the Globes have, yeah, um, but yeah. So I think I think it's something that people shouldn't shy mm -hmm. away from. I think they should watch Lubitsch's film mm -hmm. first, but I would seek this one out because it's a good comparison yes. game. Um, and um, and I, and I'm always I'm always kind of pro remake anyway because remakes have been happening since the birth of cinema uh for people who like the maltese falcon guess what that's the third time they remade that movie um frankenstein had been made before Karloff's version sherlock holmes had been on screen before the hound of the baskervilles happened so it's like a constant cycle right. like everybody i think that there's just but there's a lot of austerity to lubich and i think mel uh, under the producing wing and having alan johnson direct it primary for that blocking in action i think he does a fine mm -hmm. job I don't think his performance is as good as Jack's, but they are different performances. Yes, they are. I, I think that's why I like them both a lot is because yeah, yeah. they're both very different performances of that character. Yeah, I think that Brooks's version of um, Tora, but now he's called Bronski. Um, it, they're they're different names, but they're the same character type. He's leaning into the ham, the, into the hammery. Brooks is really leaning into the hammery, and he's use he's lampooning his own yes. vanity. That he is seems to be more 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 than willing to admit, which is neat. Is one of those reasons I like him. He's not ashamed to be mm -hmm. himself. Um, but um, uh, but also he's uh because he's leaning more into the humorous side. There are moments where Jack's Benny's performance is a little bit more subtle and a little bit more intricate. Brooks is going mm -hmm. broad. Um, that doesn't mean, again, this movie does have heart and sorrow in it, as it should, because of the subject they're dealing with. But the balance is different. I mean, one of the tie-in songs for this movie is the Hitler rap. <laughs> like, um, Yeah, which is a funny song. It's not a song I would play like outside of listening to it for comedy's sake because it's 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 a it's somehow I think it might be like even more boundary pushing than Springtime for Hitler because that it's kind of using it's using the same symbolic beat for it's good to be the king, which is the yeah. fun version to listen to. But then it's doing the Hitler version of it. And it's very, very, uh, it's very, very touchy. And it's very, very off the wall, insane, yeah. and definitely offense, not off offensive. It's offensive, but it's, it's Mel. I'm going to trust him with that material. Um, uh, and, 
Because, like, I wouldn't trust every right. single person like, with that material. If it like, wasn't, no. It would have... That would definitely be taken in a different context. Yeah, and I, and I and I would rightfully, you know, hold up my hold up my hand and go, "Excuse me, why mm-hmm. are you doing this?" But um, uh, but again, like I think that it's not that Mel's an exceptionist; it's that Mel's intelligent with how he yeah. op- he operates it, you know. And also, I think that it it should be watched because Anne Bancroft working under the environment that her husband brings to a uh-huh. film, whether producing or directing, is interesting yes. to watch. Oh my god, I love she, it so much. And like her the, yeah. The number where they're singing in Polish the sweet George Brown. I Yeah, sweet Georgie Brown. Yeah, I can't I don't know the Pol- don't know like the actual either. Polish oh, lyrics. And it's that. driving me absolutely insane because I've been singing it to myself all freaking week and like I've annoyed everyone with it. <laughs> there's a there's a clip um of them. It's I know it's on the internet, but I would I would be remiss about talking about Mel Brooks if I didn't promote a Mel Brooks item because that's what he would do and I respect the hell out of that. Merchandising, merchandising. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take a look. We put the movie's name on everything. <laughs> oh god, that's why I want Spaceballs too, because I want him to comment on how what Star Wars has become. Not because the movies are bad, but because of what yes. the fandom has become. Yeah. But that's a uh-huh. side tangent. Anyway, uh, there's a box set that Shout Factory put out not too long ago. It's DVD uh, with a bonus CD in it called the Mel Brooks Collection. Uh, and uh, it has a lot of interviews, but it also contains a lot of specials, mm-hmm. clips. Uh, documentaries. Um, there is a special that he did in Britain in the eighties, and there's a clip of him and Anne Bancroft singing live that song. Yeah, that song. I think I've seen and that one. Is... I don't know if it's. Uh, I I don't know if it's that one, but I've seen them singing it together on a show. Yeah, and it's it's a very um, it's a very heartwarming thing to watch, uh, and I think that. Anytime you could see Mel and Ann mm-hmm. interact, that always you know, felt it, special. It <laughs> um, Cur- Curb Your Enthusiasm season four is my favorite arc because it has mm-hmm. Mel in it. Um, I like Curb, <laughs> but that one ends up being my favorite because it has all the things I would want out of a out of that concept. And having it end with Ann and Mel playing the Leo and Max characters in the mm-hmm. bar and going like, finally, Larry's going to tank the show. We don't have to tour with this, with this musical anymore. And then it's a hit again. And they literally do the same, you know, they're hiding their heads and then they both look up and realize that they've created another monster. <laughs> like, uh, so like, I, I love that interaction with them. And it, and it does seem that like, there's this indication of just like this strong affection that permeated throughout their relationship that just seems seems magical every time I read Uh, about it. Yes. I love listening to him talk about her because it's just, it's just mm -hmm. so special. Yep. I like, I like listening to him talk about Anne and I like listening to him talk about, talk about Carl, which speaking of which this is, this is another reason why I love Mel. 2000 year old man yeah i don't think comedy duos exist anymore i think they're i mean the sklar brothers are an exception i think the sklar brothers Mm -hmm. are really good um but uh 
Gen- and I think well, there's the Grolics, but that's a trio. That's a very different. I, I, it's kind of different. I'm talking about like well, yeah. this traditional mm-hmm. vaudevillian set, like straight man, yeah. funny delivery mm-hmm. guy. Um, uh, in the tradition of Burns and Allen or Abbott and Costello. Um, and the fact that the fact of how that came about actually is yeah. awesome because it is just. It's similar to the idea of podcasting. Like two people have a conversation, they're just chit chatting away, and they're just like, "Why aren't we recording this right now?" And you know the story of how that bit came yeah, about, yeah. right? I mean, I I, I kind of want to yeah. tell it for people because I don't know if they've heard it, but Carl is in the writer's room of your show of shows, and they're pitching ideas, and he had an idea about. Uh, doing an idea of like see the inside of a person's room and hearing that Stalin talked about blowing up the world Thursday and he heard this from the toilet and they he went into another spiel about it and he went over to Mel and goes here's a man who was there at the scene of the crucifixion <laughs> and then he goes up to the man and goes sir did you know Jesus and Mel just responded thin lad wore sandals walked around the store never bought anything <laughs> And they ended up doing that for friends. Mm-hmm. And then one night at a party, they did the bit. They had a couple people come up to him. I know George went up to him and said, if you mm-hmm. don't, uh, if you don't put that on a record, I'm going to steal I still, it. Like, uh, did they go to one party or like, I feel like they did it over a couple of parties because, because yeah, like Burns we, said that. And I've heard him say like, Steve Allen said that. And like, Oh, Steve, Steve Allen didn't say, Steve Allen said, um, look, I want you to put this on a yeah, record. Yeah, you guys need to put this on a record. Yeah, I will yeah. give you the studio. Yeah. George yeah. threatened to steal, well, <laughs> but that's just George. Couple, I, I feel like that said that. And then like, like took, yeah, took the recording. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> took the recordings and was like, Carrie, okay, yeah, it, this can be played literally anywhere because like the, the freaking queen mother loves yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Carl Carl's line about it is going like uh, Mel, we can get away with this whatever we want. The biggest shiksa in the yeah. world loves yeah. it, <laughs> and uh, and but yeah, and actually Eddie Robinson apparently goes like, I want to play that. I want to play that thousand year old man. Yeah. <laughs> like, just like that would be amazing, but no. Uh, but they ended up recording it, and the initial album, the first album, the the two thousand year old man itself is only like a twelve minute, twelve ten to twelve minute section of the album, and then the rest of it is other mm-hmm. sketches. Uh, there's even one where he's interviewing a guy from Argentina who's uh, like a works on a coffee plantation, and it's slowly revealed that he's a you know a Nazi in hiding. Um, and they keep and in the, the other albums they do that bit, and then they'll do other extra bits, and then finally they drop the they drop the shroud. The last two albums end up being just the yeah. two thousand year old man for about fifty to seventy minutes, depending on the length. 2,000-Year-Old Man in the Year 2000 is actually kind of lovely to listen to because, it one, it's the last time they really did it, but number two, it's just, like, it's an interesting, mm-hmm. like, ending point to this. They won the Grammy for it, but, you know, there's still, like, you, you notice that they still have uh-huh. that energy going. And Carl was one of the best straight men that ever lived. And in knowing how to play off mm-hmm. of Mel, like, Carl... And Bud Abbott are in the same league where they are like the best straight men that have ever existed. Like, because they know how to play into the joke if they need to. Like, George is my second place because George freely admits all I did was 
say, Gracie, how's your brother? And then I would let her talk. (laughs) Um, But I would argue that George gets Mm -hmm. the laughs too. Um, But Carl does this thing. There's a clip that I know you've seen. If you've, if you've watched their television appearances, there's one they were doing on the Danny Thomas show or Danny Thomas special. And they're talking about singing opera. And at one point, like he asks Carl to sing a note and Carl just belts out this operatic note that you swore Alan Jones from Night yeah. at the Opera was singing it. And it blows Mel's mind. <laughs> he just takes it aback. He's clearly heard this before, but he yeah. overacts to it because he's talking about the idea of applause. And <laughs> and yeah. just that you watch that friendship yeah. back and forth. It's it, magnificent. It's so good. Yes. I love yeah. it so, so much. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that, um, that, that, that's, that's kind of like how I look at it and the, and the friendship with Gene, obviously, I think that goes without saying, um, they only did three films together, but those are three American Mm -hmm. classics. It's not even, we're not even talking about Mel just in general at this point. We're talking about like, these are cinematic classics. Mm -hmm. The producers won an Oscar for screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Blazing Saddles was nominated for. Uh, a couple of Oscars and young Frankenstein is a perennial favorite. Like that combo seems to be made of magic that uh, I think that I think that Gene was really good at tapping into what Mel brought to human behavior. Um, He could play a nervous, nervous man full of ambition. He could play a drunk gunslinger that's supposed to be gig young (laughs) Uh, and and or he could play a disgruntled son of a Frankenstein, um, and I think that I feel like there was like there was this part of me that when he died, my a lot of people went back to Willy Wonka, I went back to Leo Bloom, and there's this scene in the movie. It's one of my one of my top my so my three top Mel movies are the the producers, the twelve chairs, and high anxiety. Those are the ones that I pick for people to watch. Um, and there's a scene outside of the fountain where they're talking about how the scheme will go down, and it's a wide shot, and you hear Leo go, "What if we do? But if we get caught, we'll go to jail." And you know, Max goes like, you know, don't you feel like you're already in jail? Don't you want to be a butterfly? Don't you want to spread your wings, flap your way to glory? And uh, Gene says, uh, "You're right. I'm tired of. Uh, I, I'm so tired of be uh, being treated wrong by people who I'm smarter than, people I'm better than. I want. I want. I want everything that's ever happened in the movies. And." He says, I'll do it. And then the fountain just yeah. bursts with water in the most over-exaggerated yeah. fashion. And then Mel's, Mel and his cameraman, God bless them, they're doing, they get off that tripod and there's this underneath shot of Leo Bloom embracing the madness. And he goes, I'm Leo Bloom. It's me. It doesn't matter who I am. Like he's He is embracing this transformation that Leo's about to have before they, yeah. you know, get to the point of having to blow up a theater. <laughs> That's the one thing I think in the producers that hasn't aged well is blowing up a theater. <laughs> like, I'm just like, yeah, ah, they're not, the theater's empty. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. The, the amount of passion that he brought for it. So like, yeah. And there's, and then Madeline Kahn. Mm-hmm. I mean, he worked Mel between Madeline Kahn and Cloris Leachman flat out, like 
disprove the myth that some people believe that women aren't funny. I'm like, that's never been true. Yeah. But also, if I need to give you examples, Cloris Leachman and Madeline Connor. Mm-hmm. And the best ways you sell that to people are show them Young Frankenstein or show them Blazing Saddles or show them a High Anxiety, which they're all, all uh, well, Cloris isn't in Blazing Saddles, which <laughs> that would have been great. But uh uh, Young Frankenstein and High Anxiety, two examples where Ma- Madeline and Cloris are dominating mm-hmm. the comedy and controlling scenes. Mm-hmm. Like Elizabeth in Young Frankenstein controls the scenes that she's in. Yeah, she's like she's. It's almost like the men in the in the scene are having to fight how funny she is. <laughs> um, and uh, the and Cloris does the same too. Like. You know, who takes the thunder away from Gene Wilder? Only the person who, when their name is said, can literally conjure thunder. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really going to um, try. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I think that it's, I, and, and there's like, and there's other actresses he's worked yeah. with too over the years, but I do think that like Cloris and Madeline were the prime exemplars. Yeah. Um, you know, Dom DeLuise, I love when he works with Dom because Dom, he just, he knows how to use Dom. Yeah. Like he knows how to use him in sparing parts. There's not yeah. very many people like that I feel like know how to use Dom well. I think when you got him with Bert, it worked. Yeah. Um, like Smokey and the Band Part 2 works because Dom's with Bert and it's just fun. Not as good as the first one. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's. I, it's it's not the third one. That's all I care about. It's not the third one. The third one's kind of a yeah. mess. Um, uh, the end is a fun movie. Uh, and I, uh, but like Dom, I I do feel like Dom worked better as a supporting character. And I think that Mel knew what to do with him because he knew how to elicit the the zaniness yes. out of him. I think the best work he ever did with Mel is easily the Twelve Chairs yes. because he's playing a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just a cameo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think Father Fyodor is, he has an arc that I like, I don't like hate the character by the end of it. I know I'm supposed to not like him right. because he's the scheming priest, but I'm just like, yeah, but he's, if, if the, if the theme of the 12 chairs is to talk about how much their lives are upended and how greed is a motivating factor for them, like he is a truly sympathetic character yeah. in that respect. Um, I mean, Pizza the Hut is fun. I, I, that I think that makeup just grosses me out the older <laughs> I get, because <laughs> I keep thinking yeah. about what it took to get that suit to do that. Um, and I then don't also, like to like, think about it. <laughs> no, no, nobody does. Okay. But if you have to, yeah. like, if I'm thinking out of it from like a technical tactician yeah. area, yeah. I'm like, that's got to be the weirdest costume setup ever, and you've got to reset all that slime coming off of him. Oh. Um, but also even like the smallest things he does in, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights where he's playing a Marlon Brando little parody of himself, of the Godfather. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's still fun. Um, uh, Ronnie Graham, the way he uses Ronnie Graham is like, especially as the priest in, uh, Spaceballs where he's like, yeah, this is getting ridiculous. Do you, do you, (laughs) okay, you're married. Kiss her. The way he used Ron Clark in, uh, High Anxiety Mm -hmm. is wonderful. Mm Um, Harvey Corman, I think, will always, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think Harvey will be my eternal go-to because Harvey Corman is the only one of these guys that I got to see do anything live. Oh, yeah. Um, 
when he was still he so later on in his life before he died harvey and tim conway who were on the carol burnett show um did a tour called tim and tim tim conway harvey corman together again Mm -hmm. and they didn't and they didn't have carol with them so they did a they had like another person coming in for the carol ones whenever they did a carol a sketch where carol would have been in it and I got to see them both live at the Buell Theater here in Denver when I was a kid. Oh, special. Yeah, this was this is I, I this is the problem with my memory and why I hate myself for drinking the way I did. I'm I'm I'm, not, I'm coming up on 3 years clean now. I don't remember all the bits. I used to remember the bits that they did. I know they did the dentist sketch. That's the only yeah. one I remember. The dentist sketch cuz that's you're never going to not do mm-hmm. that. Um but like the fact that I got to see Corman do his stuff live, it makes rewatching Blazing Saddles especially very special. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also High Anxiety because High Anxiety... He's, he's so good in that. that <laughs> the, uh, the scene where he's making the patient think that he's still seeing the werewolves, werewolves <laughs> is the meanest slash silliest slash hilarious, most hilarious thing yeah. I've ever seen in my life because he... he he has to switch from looking concerned to being an asshole <laughs> uh, in the span of like two seconds. Yeah. So he puts that teeth back in, does this, and then he takes it out and goes like, mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's again, we could be going through the collaborators all night and I've definitely gone through them all. <laughs> right. I mean, I would, I will also mention John Morris's scores because he was a wonderful composer um, who knew how to score comedies very well. And uh, like this, going back to the to be or not to be, just like for a tiny millisecond, uh, sure. do you do you remember the Jack Benny reference in there? It's been a while since I've rewatched it. You will have to uh, uh, remind me. He uh, where he lives is uh, Kubelski. Kubelski Street. Yeah, that's right. And that also ends up referencing the beginning of it where they're going uh, Lubinsky, Kominsky, Lominsky, Rosnansky, and Poznansky. Yeah. And that's how Lubitsch sets up we're in Warsaw. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. my gosh, though. Like, what I find annoying is, like, I was watching it, and I was watching it with subtitles, and they spelled Kubelski wrong, and I was like. Oh, really? Oh, I've got it. I've got it on my shelf. Uh-huh. I might pull it up tonight and check that to see if the blue. Do you have the Blu-ray or do you have the DVD? DVD. Okay, I'm gonna check the Blu-ray and see if they corrected it in that time. Because <laughs> it's not like I can message Fox anymore because they don't exist anymore. Uh-huh. At least not that version yeah. of them anymore. Like that's gone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that I, and that's Mills acknowledged in interviews like the Jack Benny oh, yeah. movie, like or just like Jack Jack he's mentioned Jack, which I always appreciate. Like that's a first and foremost thing with me. If you respect where you where it came from, mm-hmm. I don't care what you do with it. Like I mean, I, I I'd be hard pressed to think of an example necessarily mm-hmm. uh within the recent times. But like, yeah, if you respect the material, like go nuts with it, man. Like it's a story. It's gonna be retold no matter yeah. what. Might, might as well do it if you're the correct man for the job, which I would argue Mel is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Critic, have you seen that? It's a little short. Yes. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah, that's on the collection as well. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, uh, that is a, 
it's funny because I like I I. I first I, I was confused because there is a television show called The Critic with John Lovitz, which is a fun show. Um, but yeah, th- that short film that is that is something that I would be curious to stick it in an Alamo screening before a film with like, with a sea of film fans wearing yeah. and see how they react to it because I don't know how they would I know. because. It's and you and I know what this is referencing in specifics because of our knowledge of history, but it's really referencing like this this barrage of avant garde art, uh-huh. this barrage of art house cinema that is permeating the film culture at this point, and also the American culture because it's becoming more accessible. Mm-hmm. So having this <laughs> this old Jewish man <laughs> walking in and and commenting on You're like what the, is this. <laughs> what are those dots what are the dots doing oh they're getting together oh that's cute like that 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 amount of like art house criticism but it's funny is that it does end up becoming like a precursor to mystery science theater which i don't think i could live without (laughs) like because that's a good de-stressor from like you're taking films too seriously you need to either watch mel or you need to watch mystery mystery science theater right now Mm -hmm. and just realize that they're they're products right (laughs) Um, like that's what's always gotten me about like these like things like okay you're taking yourself way too seriously right now yeah, and I and I try to find the balance with it because I do think you should treat art with sincerity yes. and honesty. Um, obviously, with what I've done with my show, the goal is to make sure you can still do that because there's a lot of art from the era that can be yeah problematic to watch unless you have the proper context. And like, but with Mel and that sense of humor, like. And also, and this even extends to Jack too. Like you know, life is too short to treat it only with this. I think there is a balance of. It's similar to the art of balance of art and commerce, where like yes, there's art, but also they do have to make some money with it, and that's always a conflict with people. And I find myself with it at odds constantly. But I'm like, it's kind of both, guys. Mm-hmm. This is just the the card we've been dealt when it comes to movies. Right. It's gonna be this. Um, and Mel reminds me to just kick back, relax, and realize, like you know, you don't. Don't think too much about yeah. it. Don't think too much about it unless I'm asking you to in a specific <laughs> moment. And yeah. you'll and you'll know yeah. instinctively what it's supposed to right. be. Um, especially if I'm rewatching the 12 chairs because it identifies it for me correctly and clearly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that kind of brings up like, so you are a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, theoretically. <laughs> theoretically a filmmaker. Okay. Sure, De- I've definitely said action and cut. We'll go with that. <laughs> so how? So you're on the Real Nerds podcast. I am. Yes. How did you find them? How did you join them? Oh, uh, uh, I met Brad, our co-host Brad, at a uh, get together for creatives in Colorado, and I. Uh, I actually got on the show because my friend Maddie, who ended up doing the score for my show, Ballyhoo Review, he does he did the little piano mm-hmm. plinky piano score. Um, he was gonna go on to promote his short film, Five Steps, and I went on to promote a thing that I did called Twombly, and also to promote another film that I had coming up. And it's creatives getting involved with other creatives. You know, it, there's never never a need to promote a short film, but 
this sounds like fun, you know? And so I went there and I, I hit it off with all three of them in different capacities yeah. right away. Um, almost immediately it was established that Ryan and I had a fake <laughs> feud. Um, almost immediately, like certain elements of it, like certain elements of our friendship were established. I ended up getting more involved in it because they actually asked me to come help guest host an episode when Ryan wasn't going to be there. And I ended up learning there through that. Um, and around that time, I was also drinking very heavily for uh, a multitude of personal traumas. And um, uh, I just wasn't stopping. And every time that I was still feeling in a low or small spot, I ended up like reconnecting with them and they would invite me back on the show. And at one point it got to the point where I was coming back every other week. And then they were just like, do you want to just do this every week? And I'm like, sure. Like I, I, it was like almost like a no brainer. It was like an instant reaction. Um, and so eventually I got to the point of every, every week, uh, and it ended up working out because, like, a lot of like, not everybody can guarantee that they can be on the show. Um, so, like, the the show helped me re reconnect with my love of watching movies and appreciating f movies, and then that led into wanting to get back to making movies. Um, and so uh, that's kind of how it ended up happening. And since then, it's virtually been a movie yeah. a week reviewing and each new film is teaching me a lesson. Like I ju just before we recorded, I went and watched Judas and the black Messiah. Um, and it's an amazing film. Like that's, it, it's, 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 it's a, it's a gangster slash crime film with the, with the, with, with the veil, with the necessary veil of the uh, important mm -hmm. biopic talking about a very important issue that needs to be talked about, but he Shaka King does it through the way of a gangster film. Um, and he subverts it in that process in a very, I think, logical way, especially given the conversations that have happened around gangster films. So, yeah, like I said, yeah. I'm learning new things every day, you know. Um, but, yeah, so that's how I kind of got involved yeah. in that. <laughs> um, and uh, thankfully, my love of Golden Age Hollywood is rubbed off on rubbed off on Ryan yeah. to some degree or another because he started get, really getting I mean, into Terry you, Grant. You've and, got to. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. He's. He's a he's a dreamboat. Not as much as Jack, but he's a dreamboat. You know, I'm, I'm just gonna, I I I stand by promoting Jack's image 100 yeah. percent of the day. Okay. But Cary Grant, Cary Grant, and and it's funny, Cary Grant's not even my go-to Golden uh -huh. Age guy. Um, uh, Bogart. it would be Bogart. Yeah, that means yeah, that'd be that'd be Bogart. And it has a lot to do with <laughs> Casablanca. Like Casablanca is my my number two film of all time, and so like I that that just falls into there. And like, and consequently I'd put like Paul Henry, not Paul Henry, sorry, um, Claude Rains, uh, Peter Laurie and Sydney Greenstreet mm -hmm. in my list of other people that I like going back to. Um, but Cary Grant, I've learned to appreciate more because yeah. of Ryan. So like I learned things yeah. from them too. Um, and like, uh, and yeah, uh, Brad and James helped me get back into star Trek, which that was something I loved in high school. And now I'm, I love going back to Star Trek now, but I'm like a, I'm a original series guy. They are TNG and beyond fans. And I'm like, I just really love watching Shatner do silly things on yeah. a spaceship, <laughs> but I, but I love the lore and I love the mythos. So like, I'm excited for Picard when I finally watch it. Like I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> so what are some of your cinematic, uh, inspirations? Like obviously, uh, Hitchcock, 
Mm-hmm. Um, Hitchcock, Hitch, Hitchcock is uh, an inspiration primarily because I saw the birds at a young age. And like, I think the things that inspire me end up coming from a multitude of sources. So like, give me a film. I'm going to find something to mm-hmm. take away from it. Doesn't matter what the film is. Could be good. Could be bad. Um, Hitchcock inspired me a lot as a youngster because of his ability mm-hmm. to shock. Consequently, John Carpenter also did that too with Halloween. Um, and I think Carpenter, like going back to Carpenter's films, they still unnerve me. Um, the first Halloween does. The sequels, not so much. Uh, they're good. They're fun sequels though. Except like that, the new one that just came out that David Gordon Green mm-hmm. did is amazing. Um, uh, but uh, uh, so yeah, like Hitchcock, Carpenter uh, did that. Scorsese was a huge influence, and I know that he's getting the shit kicked out of him by seemingly everybody on the internet because of things he says. Um, He taught me to appreciate cinema, and what's more, I enjoy Mm -hmm. the movies he makes. So, you know, I enjoy a good gangster movie. I also know how to watch those movies properly (laughs) Um, and not take the bad, take the wrong thing away from it. Like, it's not, Goodfellas is not a uh, a bro hangout movie. Bro, Goodfellas is a is a rise and fall of Henry Hill. Uh, that's what the movie is. Um, but uh, uh, so Scorsese, um, I was into Kevin Smith for mm-hmm. a long time. That's dwindled, but I still maintain that Kevin's heart, the way he wears his heart on his sleeve, is still an asset in filmmaking that I think doesn't always exist. Um, and so I'll always I'll always be first in line to go see one of his movies. But like, so like Scorsese teaches me that appreciation of cinema, Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino and I think Edgar Wright are the ones that kind of teach me how to write the mm-hmm. things I want to write. Um, I think Mel teaches you lessons in yeah. writing. Um, but um, I think that Kevin, Quentin and Edgar are the ones that teach me how to write the things that like how to write my own, like the Did stories. Did you write Twombly? Like, Okay. I did. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. And um, I wrote I wrote that I I I got the idea actually after re-listening to Jack's final episode mm-hmm. of the of his radio broadcast which is has Eugene Twombly the sound effects man. Uh and I listened to it and I I started wondering about like the fact that Jack never says this is our last show good night. He just says good night folks we'll see you in the fall. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's no no grandiose announcement to ending nearly yeah. tw- nearly thirty years yeah. on radio. It's in, it's insane, um, but it's also a testament to Jack always looking towards the future. That's what he always did. So uh, I started wondering, I'm like, what happens to the people who don't realize that this is the last show? <laughs> uh, like, because radio is dwindling and dying. It's like fifty five is when he can't ends the show. I was like, what what about? what happens when this extends to Mm -hmm. local shows? And so like that ended up being the inspiration. And I pitched it to the guy who ended up shooting it. Um, and it ended up being a thesis film for his, for his cinematography final. So that's how I ended up making it as a sophomore slash junior in film school. Um, and, uh, that was the full script of that was written with me sitting on a lawn chair inside of a kiddie pool, drinking a 12 pack of PBR. (laughs) And, 
that's a that's a that's a form of my life I will never go back to. But I remember I, this is one of the few things I remember vividly is typing that mm-hmm. thing, like it was a like I was on a mm-hmm. typewriter because for whatever reason it got me in the mode of it, and I was listening to a lot of Phil Harris, oh, Alice yeah. Faye at that time. Yeah, I don't know why. Like for whatever reason that that show was perfect in getting me in rhythm with yeah. just writing it. Um, and I think it's because Phil's voice is just. Like it just gets you, yeah. it does get you yes. in the jive and the groove. Um, but yeah, I wrote that. And then, um, uh, and, and like something like that only happens when you have like a Kevin Smith or a Quentin Tarantino or, or an Edgar Wright telling their stories, like their versions of their stories. So like Edgar tells his stories through these genre mashups. Quentin does it through his love of movies and Kevin just literally says what's on his mind. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so like that, I learned how to be self-expressive mm-hmm. through that. So like all those things combined taught me like, it's okay to write down the things I want to talk about or the things that I think would make a good story. And I tried to do it with comedies yeah. for years because I was looking up to Kevin Smith. But once I started doing drama scripts, it just made more sense because I, I do have a bit I'm, of a depressed. Attitude, I am so. <laughs> disappointed though, that I won't get a, like uh, get a comedy video from you. Oh, you can <laughs> though. Uh, so like, I've never written a comedy that I've directed and felt comfortable with because like I, I did two early ones in film school before I started jumping mm-hmm. ship to drama. But Real Nerds has given me the opportunity to write mm-hmm. comedy scripts. Um, so there are Real Nerds Black Friday shorts that we do every year now. We've done them since. Oh yeah, wasn't there one where you went to like the? Uh, it wasn't Best Buy, the fake Best Buy. Well, we, we we did film it outside of a Best Buy, but we, uh, yeah, we, uh, they, yeah, the first, so the first one was actually when I was still in the over 250 pound range. Cause I was like up at 300 and like before I finally quit drinking and started exercising and, uh, we, I had bought a TV and he's like, well, can we go back and fill like, can you go back with the box and show, we'll show you pick taking the box outside but on black friday itself the day i bought the tv we went in gorilla style and shot it and we kind of just wrote it on the spot the next year we didn't really have an idea for it and i was just like well why don't we do a parody i just saw the lighthouse and i think that this would be a great idea (laughs) and so i wrote a parody of the lighthouse now it's not uh i i'm judgmental of my own work but everybody Mm. seems to like it and and that's fine i like it too i mainly like it because i like how brad directs comedy Mm -hmm. and how he likes to set up his shots and uh, i like working with my friend spencer um but i think the creme de la creme of it was when brad and i teamed up this recent year because so covid messed with everybody as we all know in our case we didn't feel comfortable trying to film outside the best buy during covid time like that just it just felt wrong no reason to do it and filming in covid uh in a covid era is different and so i felt comfortable filming at my place because I can control the environment as can anybody else. And uh, the, the script we ended up writing was a Kevin Smith parody. We parodied clerks. Um, and so, but we called it jerks because of course we would. And uh, the, the whole premise is, is that because there's no black Friday deals to go out to the store for, we all wear our masks and me and Spencer are playing Dante and Randall. Uh, and, uh, Brad just comes up and just tries to ruin my illusion that this is actually, we're actually living in a Kevin Smith movie. (laughs) 
Um, and much like a Mel Brooks movie, we broke our we broke our version of the fourth wall by looking directly into the camera. Um, but we were doing it also primarily as a nod to Kevin Smith doing it in Jane Saw Bob Strike Back. But then at the end, I suddenly turned into Stan Lee. <laughs> Uh, because of the Mallrats cameo. So like we we managed to fudge with reality. Uh, and uh, so yeah, that, those are comedy things to, of mine that you can see that I've done. Uh, the other one is a fourth on the fourth episode of Real Nerds Pod Show season one, when I had first met them, I turn in I'm a I play a vengeful ghost who Oh, I think I did uh, see this. Screws screws with screws with Ryan makes it look like they that people had a cockfight in their house and then proclaims he wants to have sex with their dog. <laughs> like which they wrote that for me and then pitched it to me and I read it and I was, you know, I was young. I probably still would have said yes yes cuz it was so ridiculous, but I'm like this dog joke. Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> I had I had to take that chance. Like I was just like I don't know how people receive this. I kind of don't care. <laughs> um so like cuz it's how else what other chance am I going to get to play a ghost? Um uh but yeah, so um and actually we're trying to work on a concept for another season of that pod show and I'm going to help write it. And we've got to figure out how to bring me back from the dead. <laughs> uh which will be fun. Uh but yeah, so um, but no, there will be other comedies. Ev- there will be comedies eventually. Awkward transition. Um, I think it's a, I think it's important when it comes to people like Mel to understand that his heart is in the right place when it comes to the subjects mm-hmm. that he tackles. Even if people have an issue with blazing saddles today, or say the phrase "you couldn't make it today," I'm like, it's true, you can't, but you can make black dynamite which is an appropriate follow-up mm-hmm. to that. Black Dynamite by Michael J. White is actually like a good lineage point. Uh, or Jojo Rabbit from the producers. You can't do the producers really anymore. And we tried doing it with the remake and the musical, and it didn't really work, but not for the same reasons. I think just people didn't care uh, about the movie version of it. And also, that version's meant for Broadway. It's a it's a Broadway stage musical. But like Jojo Rabbit, that's the that's the logical follow up, and not everybody liked Jojo Rabbit either. A lot of people ran into the realm of like, well, now this is just trying to push a lot of buttons, and I'm like, no, I get why you'd say that. Here's my rebuttal: it's uh, using cinematic tools to convey a version of this story is complicated now by the fact of what exists now. And so all Taika Waititi is doing is using the, 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 the fact that there was a celebrity around Hitler and Nazi Germany in Germany. That's, that's the thesis. The thesis of Jojo rabbit is what happens when your 10 year old is indoctrinated into the alt-right movement. (laughs) That's what it is. Uh, That's the movie. It just, it has, it has those elements from the, story cage sky in order to tell its story um and so yeah so i think that like mel mel's films still teach these different lessons about humanity and accepting accepting our different faults and frailties similar to how jacks does but he also pokes pokes holes in the logic Mm -hmm. of films like this is this is something that i think absolutely must go in the episode is you ever notice how blazing saddles 
looks at the tropes of Westerns and asks why we did that for so many years. He doesn't make fun of it. He just asks mm-hmm. a question. And like, so a lot of it is this, like, if you did put a, uh, an African-American sheriff in there, of course mm-hmm. they'd all yeah. freak out. But then also, but then now, but now the job becomes, well, let's make fun of these people for their yeah. terrible reaction. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's where, that's where the comedy comes from. That's where it comes from pushing that button. Like, Gene mm-hmm. Wilder, the, one of the greatest moments after the old lady yeah. calls him the name, he he's holding him and he goes, what did you expect? Welcome to my home. Marry my daughter. You got to remember, these are people of the land, the common clay of the young West. You know, <laughs> morons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, <laughs> It, it, there's still lessons that you can learn yeah. from Mel in that. And I, and I, and I think that another, I mean, the last lesson that he leaves is just yeah. to laugh. And I think it's very hard to have a healthy laugh mm-hmm. these days or a laugh period. It feels like every turn we come to, there's something depressing around the corner. And I don't try to tend to rely on nostalgia for my emotional release, but Mel's films, along with other comedians that I'm in, that I'm in love with, or comedy filmmakers that I'm in love with, but Mel's films, when I go back to, I go into a very specific zone of a time in my life when things felt very, very hopeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like being young, not knowing how to identify who you are as a person. And I had to learn through Mel's films in high school, along with, you know, the other influences that I had mentioned. Like Mel's films taught me a very important lesson about how I exist as a human being, which is I don't really care about looking or feeling normal. (laughs) I really care about making a noise, which is uh, or like making a noise in the respect of just like I would like to be goofy and be irreverent and off the wall. And if I've done anything successful in my life, it would be to hopefully have you question whether or not I'm an actual human being, or if I literally came out of a cartoon, (laughs) if I can do that, then I've, then I've totally succeeded. Um, And like part of that is part of that has been a defense mechanism for emotional pain. But in reality, it's, it's, it also comes from this sense of like, no, this is how I would love the world to be. Can the world be as insane as these movies, please? Cause it would make more sense than what I deal with. I would rather deal with this than deal what we've been dealing with the last four years, because this has felt like a Mel Brooks movie that went the wrong direction. (laughs) I, I, yeah. yeah. Like president Scroob would be a much more tolerable leader at this point. (laughs) Um, But yeah. And, and, but yeah. And I will say if anybody's wanting a reminder of how, how much he still has it, look up the times he's been on with Kimmel or been on with Ferguson. He's really, he's still sharp as a whip. You can look up podcast interviews with him, um, with Leonard, Leonard and Jesse Malton, um, uh, with shout factory. Yeah. Those interviews are really special. Those are ones Mm -hmm. you want to listen to because those are some of the last time capsules you're going to get of Mel. I've said for years and I still stand by this, to an extent, which is, I used to say in my early twenties, well, the day Mel Brooks dies, it's that's when comedy dies. That's when it ends. That's done. We've just, we've just decided to stop. Um, 
and I think the reason I said that all those years was because he is such right. a master at his craft, but he also meant that much to me that I'm just like, I don't know how I'd be able to laugh knowing that Mel mm-hmm. Brooks isn't there to also laugh at something else that's completely unrelated to me. Like, I just need to know that that man is yes. still giggling all these years later. I, um, and yeah, so, I, yeah, I felt that way about Carl. And so like, there's times where I'm just like, I wonder if Carl would laugh at that. And I'm like, this is kind of crazy that I like asked, asked that, but like, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I look at it from like it for me it's not even like a hero worship thing. It's more just like this kin it's a it does feel like you've connected to yeah. a kindred spirit and you and but you take the lessons from it and you don't attach yourself too much to it because I you know like given given my luck Mel Brooks is going to die on a day I have to work and I just have to power through that yeah. shift. But <laughs> um but like cuz Carl died before I had to go into work one day. And I was like, and the whole shift, it was an overnight shift where I didn't have to worry about customers, but I was like, dang, like, I guess I'm going back through some 2000 year old man bits at work today. And I did. And it was, and it was really comforting, really relieving. Um, And I think with Mel, I think I would definitely be cranking on some of his soundtracks. I think that'd be my first go-to because I would want to hear him sing again. Uh, But thankfully he's still alive. And my guess is that we're going to figure out that Walt Disney tech for him because it didn't work for Walt. No. It'll work for Mel. Like it has yeah. to work for Mel. <laughs> I for have Mel. to share something. Let me see if I can find it. I want to screen. So I, I'm sharing on the screen. So I I uh, had, a, I liked Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks to follow me on my birthday. Obviously didn't. Mel Brooks. And so then uh, as you're seeing up here, it's a picture of like Mel Brooks following me on Twitter. And <laughs> I was like, what the frick is happening? Here's my reaction. I'm like, thanks for the afternoon follow. Actually, if it was a mistake, I wouldn't mind the continued support. I was like freaking out. <laughs> and so I found, and these are out of order. So like, I, uh, at first I thought it was a mistake. Then kind of thought uh-huh. uh i was looking back for this tweet and uh i was like uh i found this tweet that said mel brooks doesn't follow anyone even carl reiner but i think it'd be funny if he only followed me for one day and like so i really <laughs> think that maybe like carl and like mel were like joking one day and like as you know that and maybe like they like like okay just one day and we'll do it randomly like in the that's future incredible. she'll that's forget awesome. all about this and like ah <laughs> oh, that's that's amazing yeah i even say mel you must have accidentally followed me <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the best, it's that's lovely the best day of my life the, that's that's amazing that's great i also i do love that his that his profile says field dairy farmer (laughs) another awkward transition because we talked about jack benny and george burns for an hour some of it i will be making into a separate mini podcast episode now we take you to your regular scheduled programming where i have just asked zach about his directing career and i started with talking about The Boy Who Stares. 
yeah that was a um that's that's a film that uh tackles some subject matter that has become all too prevalent within the last couple of years um it's a good film uh i've got uh the one i did recently leather brown was a uh, attempt to work with material that is not my own this is the second time that i've done it the first time that i did it is also like it was more of a fun piece um this one was written by the actor in the film hayden winston and uh the co-star her his co-star is Risa scott who was in boy who stares um and it's basically a relation it's a breakup drama mm. um shot in black and white uh in in, Ju- in july uh slash august around the uh when covid was still kind of hot and heavy and we were trying to learn how to film in those conditions yeah um and i have some i have some stuff in the works right now for some shorts coming up this year um so that'll be fun um but beyond that like you know i'm gonna be working in the r- realm of black and white again because mm-hmm. i i've kind of learned to just embrace that <laughs> yeah everybody liked Twombly so much and <laughs> I started keep trying to do color movies. And then finally I went back to black and white and I'm like, this is the only thing you know how to do at this point. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed doing it. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, I really like, I really enjoyed it. So I think you, you do well. How, uh, I, I don't even know. Cause like I, I'm trying to figure out how to, um, get more involved in filmmaking because like I went to school for like journalism but I took the video production side of it and okay. I but like I don't have like the network or like the friends that like do this for fun or their job or anything so like okay what I would do is try to see if there's any um I mean, this is going to sound like an obvious answer, but I'm going to give you an actual answer in a second. But um, finding groups like online collectives online mm-hmm. um, of film communities and throwing yourself out there and being like, I'm available. Here's what I can offer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, given that you've worked in a television station, you obviously understand production management mm-hmm. to some capacity or another UPM work, which is things that I know people need. Um, so producers, especially I'm a producer or I was, yeah. But... yeah. Um, and I should probably keep in touch with you on that alone for things coming up. Um, I don't see, like, I don't know though, if like producers in the news world are the same for like film, because it seems like they're different. Do you have a, do you have a call sheet? <laughs> this is going to sound crazy. Do you have a call sheet, um, in the news world? Like, like to let everybody know who's on the schedule for that day. Like when, when, uh, when a personality needs to show up on set, when oh. the crew needs to show up on set. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess I, I have anchors. I have the reporters. Yeah. A, a producer to my mind needs to do a couple things. One, they need to facilitate the organization of the production and a lot of that has to do with an email chain that is about five miles long uh, and understanding how a call sheet works and also be willing to jump, jump at the chance to assist if something comes up that the director can't manage or the AD can't manage. 
the AD on set should be the one running the show and the producer is kind of there facilitating things they've already set up. So like a producer will, in my experience, a producer helps out finding the locations and securing the locations. Oh yeah. Um, that's more of a, yeah, that's more of a field producer. We would call it. Yeah, exactly. Now in film, we would have, you know, a, uh, a line producer mm-hmm. kind of helps within that line producer would be on, in during production but a main producer would also probably be there too depending on the scale of the mm-hmm. production um producers got to just make sure that everything's working on a smooth ship before they get going and that it runs on a smooth ship afterwards like yeah i'll be honest you know if you <laughs> theoretically if you grab a grip bucket you're a producer like <laughs> you can you can slap, slap that label on anything it's mainly that people need people to organize shit yeah i'm very good at doing that i guess so there you go then already i'd probably want to tap your help tap your tap you for help on that i do it by being annoying and emailing and calling people all the time you you would be saving me the hassle of having to be the one that does that all the time because i end up trying to produce direct because i have no other person that i trust to do it yeah yeah but uh and then as far as like reaching out to other people, like, yeah, like throw yourself out there for like for those, those opportunities, because you'd be surprised who will bite and say like, well, I do this, mm-hmm. you know, let's collaborate. Um, you know, Iowa, I don't know about any right. community out there necessarily, but, you know, creatives live in your state. No oh, doubt. yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, to to the extent of like who you'd want to work with would be entirely up to you. But yeah. I would just yeah, I would try to be on the lookout for uh virtual events that are related in the city or mm-hmm. you know even like like i mean reach i mean the denver film community does have a lot of people on the lookout for help and whatnot but like that that does involve travel so it always has to be considered yeah. but i think that your your passion for it and your experience in television is an asset that people need because they need to learn how to organize because there's not i would love to get paid to do work in entertainment or in video production i don't have my skills are all set to what i want to do mm-hmm. so i'm not very good at editing a corporate video i can't do i can't do after effects i know a little bit about audition when it comes to film um and it's tricky and i'm still learning it yeah um so i mainly like a lot of the skill set that i have to offer is something that people don't pay for <laughs> yeah uh, so, but you do have that that asset. Somewhat, within, within I did you. more of the writing side for my producing work. Mm-hmm. So, but I do think that people will be on the lookout for somebody who can organize because a creative, like a, a director's, like directors are, and I speak as one. Um, for the for the moment, let's assume I know what I'm talking about, um, and they. We're a nervous, paranoid bunch that need to be wrangled in. And when we don't have that, we find ourselves running both ends of the ship. The creative part of it becomes compromised in the process. Mm-hmm. So like, so like the, the fact that my latest film, Leather Brown, works at all is a testament to the people who worked on it with me and not me. Because I was directing and producing at the same time, and I ran myself ragged. <laughs> To the point where I literally had to put trust in my, not just my editor and my sound editor, but also like the opinions of everybody on the crew being like, 
does the product work? Like, does the film work? I think it works, but I'm looking at it through the lens of somebody who's watching every frame 500 times. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. when you, when you have that, it, it eases the, it eases the process for the director. So, um, but again, I'm giving you my personal experience on it. I would also reach out to other people who have different modes of, on this, yeah. um, because everybody works different. Everybody thinks there's a science to directing or like there's a way to teach directing. And the answer is no, because if that were the case, I'd be a much better director. Um, you know, I think that you need to learn what works for you mm -hmm. another thing to do is write a short script and film it yourself not necessarily because like it's like well anybody can make a movie and it's like that's technically true but learn learn how to make it through yeah. your own experience on it mm -hmm. like learn through trial and trial by error um and you'd be surprised how much you can get accomplished when you get a small little group together like if you've got friends in your area just shanghai him for a weekend and make a movie and like hey hey if you do it i'll help you produce it because i can separate myself out from that like i can i know how to produce for people i i've i've not done it since last year yeah and i the way i did that <laughs> the way i did it ended up kind of happening on accident <laughs> because i was initially there just to do sound and then they didn't have an ad and i'm like guys you don't have an ad <laughs> and they're like no i'm like all right i'm the ad now so here's our schedule here's what we're following if i have to cut something we're cutting something see it's very simple <laughs> i just took the reins on it because they needed it yeah and then and then i ended up becoming the ad on the next shoot like literally a month later because they were doing mm -hmm. another short so you know like that that's something I know how to help out with. But I think that like, if you do end up doing something like that to learn firsthand, at the very least, you can go up to somebody and say, I've had experience and I've learned my, learned some lessons. Yeah. Um, because this, at this point, you don't need to go to a film school to make a movie. What you need to do is go out and make a movie and learn what to not do in the next time. <laughs> Everybody wants to have their first project and product look perfect out of the gate when they go to film school. And I'm like, that's not yeah. happening, buddy. <laughs> right. It's not happening. I thought I could do it and I didn't do it. <laughs> I think what like film school gives you more is more of the group of people that's doing it. Yeah. And that's you know what it yeah it, it gives you it gives you contacts it gives you contacts mm -hmm. with people that you want to work with not people that can benefit you but people that you want to work with and it also it also forces you to appreciate films you know like really watch a film really study it really understand that there is a line between commerce and art that is manageable um and also understanding like the history of cinema which i think is like the least important uh part that the, the most important part that people take for granted they just assume it's always going to be here and it's like well no you are you're going to have to learn to adapt to what it's becoming uh yeah. or find a way to sustain what it can be in all realms um and i think if you don't understand that this in industry is not just you know suddenly shifting from theaters to vod it's like no guys the technology has literally changed every like 20 to 30 years you changed sound you, you went from silent to sound you went from black and white to color you went from four, four three to widescreen you went from uh uh 
no 3D to 3D to no 3D to 3D again to no 3D to 3D again to no 3D again. <laughs> We've gone through 3D three different phases over the decades. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea of streaming and content, like I agree with Scorsese to an extent about film being reduced to content, but I think he's missing tactful language when it comes to expressing that thought because that would denigrate the amount of independent artists who are working on the same networks that he's working on to get his movies made. <laughs> I think he's just very sad and rightfully so that there's another certain type of movie that people would rather watch right now than his movies, which I think they could learn a lot from his movies. I think people could learn a lot from the Irishman about not idealizing terrible people by looking at the costs of a lifestyle because it's like, you know, I didn't think I had to teach you this lesson, but now I'm going to do a three and a half hour movie to teach you a lesson. Cause you know, who the hell, like, I, I didn't think we'd live in a world where I needed to explain to a bunch of man babies that Goodfellas is not about good guys, <laughs> but I've had to do it because I'm like, guys, like, yeah, the reason he romanticizes it is then to deconstruct it by the halfway point. Like if you're, if you're looking up to that, it's no wonder that people give you shitty looks on the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, like I, so I think understanding all those elements will be important down the line, but as far as production and whatnot, get in the, get in the dirt and do it because you'll learn what works and doesn't work for you and what you're good at too. And I would say if you find somebody who has a project, raise your hand high as you can yeah. and say the, say the words within reason and respect, anything you need. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is like, if you need to be a grip, be a grip, if you mm -hmm. need to be a PA, be a PA, you need to get somebody coffee, do it. And then just ask, can I stick around the set for five minutes? Mm -hmm. And you never know what it leads to. Um, but obviously, you know, keep yourself safe. Because I don't, I don't know what the world looks like in Iowa, but <laughs> Colorado, I always like, I, I, I try to keep safety first on set, the highest priority, mm -hmm. uh, as best as I'm able to witness it while I'm going through a manic, manic depression mode. But, uh, you know, and I think that, I think you'll learn what you want to find. Like you, you already told me that you left your job and you're yeah. kind of in that in between transition period, right? Yeah, I, if anybody is listening, I, yeah. I need a job. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I would say that, um, you know, like, I'd say, I, I would say ultimately to, um, I don't know if this is like worthy of putting on digital wax and whatnot, but take the time that you have right now while you're searching for that to unload your creativity in a healthy way mm -hmm. because then that will lead to that can lead to a short script that you want to shoot mm -hmm. tell your story while you have the ability if you've got a camera if you've got a way to do sound on film or sound on set do it um and i think that having seen what you can do already with the graphics and visuals that you did with the jack presentation you know like you can start learning more tools in there and taking further steps and then also kind of learning like, okay, like what, if I'm going to work as a creative here, what kind of stories do I want to tell? I think the big thing is you'll want to understand what kind of stories you want to tell. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you already kind of do that with the podcast, but go past that and look at the things that you, not your life philosophies, but like the philosophies of a thing that you would want to see exemplified on the screen. So like for me, I relate to regret, aging, and audacity. But yeah, no, I would just say like ultimately like I I would say when it's all said and done, don't you know, take that take that time to figure out like those things you want to see on the screen. So like I like I said, like I those are themes that I relate to because for whatever reason those are the stories that I know how to tell. And then I try to find a way to tell them through my experience. I'm not an old person as you can see. Uh, and I, but I do, I, I do have regrets in my life, um, regardless of how little I've been on this earth. And I try to transpose those anxieties and those feelings into what I do. Um, even with the stuff that I haven't written, like Leather Brown came, the reason I did Leather Brown ended up becoming, uh, a way to release, uh, certain insecurities that I had about myself uh, by way of this this dissection of two people going through a, like a very frustrating period in their life. Um, and I think what ended up coming out of it was the idea of like for however much sadness there is, there's also some hope, but it becomes into a bittersweet version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what life ends up being. But like, you know, and, and, you know, always try to do what you would want to do. Like, I would love to write a Coen Brothers kind of script. That'd be awesome. Like, do, do a very, very dark tale about nobody learning anything by the end and then coming full circle and it having kind of a morality angle on it that is kind of skewed. I can't do that, though. I can write, I can write dark jokes like a Coen Brothers script, but I can't do the kind of story they do. Like, watch A Serious Man and try to understand how anybody could write that movie. And then understand that it's about the Coen brothers making fun of you for making too much of a big deal in their movies. <laughs> like, it, like it's, a, it's a movie specifically designed to tell people stop reading into our movies. <laughs> um, it's their version of the walrus. Kind of, yeah. It's uh, it's 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 a serious man is a movie where the point of the movie is literally said out loud in a line of dialogue. And the beauty of it is because they will never talk about it out loud in a commentary. I have no idea if I'm not actually saying is true. But there's a line in it where one of the guys says, accept the mystery. And he keeps saying it. And I'm like, and it took me forever to realize that. <laughs> I was just knew I was always entranced by the movie. And now it's become my favorite Coen Brothers movie because I'm just like, yeah. Like, why didn't I see this the first time? <laughs> They're fooling me with the story of Job here. This is actually about this. Uh, but yeah. So. <laughs> and uh, Mel Brooks, right? <laughs> yeah, Mel Brooks, yeah. We went on a whole tangent. Uh, no, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, apart from that, yeah, you know, just find a way to get that creativity out there. Yeah. Because it's sorely needed. It is sorely needed. And I mean, I, I would love to work with Young projects, so we'll we'll keep in touch on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, 
But as far as, like, the, the majority and the vastness of this conversation, you know, like... We went everywhere. Yeah, we went everywhere, and, you know, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would say that... I would say that, like, like having these discussions about filmmakers in the past or comedians in the past, like, it hopefully inspires you to want to keep creating because you liked the, the way they made you feel. Mm-hmm. And so now you can pass that energy on to the next person who might need it. Hopefully. That's yeah. a hope. I mean, it doesn't, but it doesn't need to be on the mass scale like Mel's been able to have over the years. It can literally be just one person in the next room or one person randomly watching it on the internet you you have no idea who you're going to affect with your work you have like you, like you'll, you'll you'll probably never know like directly but it would behoove you to put it out there in case somebody needs it mm. because sometimes somebody might need it even though i got a comment from somebody on 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 ballyhoo today about our talk on the searchers talking about how it was a, they, they liked it, and they liked that we were discussing a very hard topic, which is John Wayne and John Ford. And I was flabbergasted by that, because I was like, that's the reason I created the show. Mm-hmm. Just, for, just for that one reaction. I didn't need... I, I, I could have a million comments at this point, and they would still all mean the world to me, but I'd be like, that's the, that's, this, is, this is what I needed to realize. Mm-hmm. Is that like I was... There was somebody out there who was understanding what I was trying to do. So, you know, putting it out there for people, even if you never hear it, that's that's the important thing. Oh, yeah. that's nice. For, for anybody, if they're still recording and listening, like, you know, guys, like, keep keep listening to this show because you're going to learn some stuff. You're not going to be, you know, let up. <laughs> you're not going to be let down the same rabbit hole just on my episode. You need to listen to the other episodes around here. <laughs> <laughs> This yeah. Is, this, is, this is one protracted conversation that didn't need to go on as long as I let it be. It's fine. <laughs> but, uh, what, what should I say for a wrap-up? Um, let's see. Uh, hello, dear. This is 2,000 years talking to you from when they once was and now I'm still and they not. And I want to say it's been fun talking about Mel Brooks with Hope Sears listen to the show, and eat a nectarine. They're the best thing that God ever made. Thank you. (laughs) We're a little late, so good night, folks. Hello! Please leave a review, a rating, a message, just whatever you can on whatever app you're using to listen to this. It really helps. I know from personal experience. And I really thank you for listening. I may not have a large audience because, well, loving the classics is kind of a niche thing. But I don't want these classics to die out. And that is why I need your help. Please like and share. This has been a Hope Sears presentation, darling.